Good evening. Welcome to the Adventurers Club of Los Angeles. We're here tonight with Colonel Hank Reed, United States Air Force retired. That's right. And you're here to talk to us tonight about being a pilot and being a test pilot. So we got some interesting stuff here tonight. You brought us um, this F-35 display. We, we, we appreciate that. Thank you for joining us to, to the here. club. It's exciting. Um, yeah. So um, just so our viewers know, this month we're doing like an aviation test flight theme. Okay. Right. So every all, all our guests, starting with you, uh, are going to be aviators. I'm the first one. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so lots of uh, like you know when, when we talk about adventure, we kind of think of it in four separate realms, right? Right. There's like under sea. There's on top of the sea. There's like uh, mountaineering and trekking and hiking and all that stuff and travel. And then there's air and space. Right on. So, you know, we've had a lot of different people on the show, but, you know, we haven't had a lot of pilots. And okay. this club has a lot of pilots in it. So, I'm going to check um, my math, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you, start, you grew up as um, like, like an army brat, right? Your I did. father was in, in the army and took you all over the world, right? He did. And then, and then how, how did you get involved? The military. When did when did you first think that you were going to become a pilot? Well, like you said, I, I was born in the military. Mm -hmm. um, probably about seven or eight years old. I think I went to an air show, saw the Thunderbirds. Thought that was really cool. Used to build model airplanes. Vietnam War was going on, you know. So you're sort of watching it out of the corner of your eye. And uh, I thought, you know, that someday I'd like to do that. I like to fly jets. That that looks cool. Yeah. And then um, as I went through high school, and I realized. You know, I could go to college and and go into the military, you know, and do that path. So I just, and then, as you pointed out, moving all over, I was born in Germany. Uh -huh. my, uh, my mom's German. She naturalized U.S. citizen. We moved mostly over the southeast, but then back to Europe. And I went to high school in Belgium. So I had, a, had some real wow. opportunity there to, to see, um, besides a lot of travel in the country, but but to really appreciate... Uh, you know, the Europeans still remembered uh, World War II, and then the Cold War was at the height of it. I played football at Han Air Base, and we had to stop the game a couple of times because four ships of F-4s were taken off, you know, wow. some sort of alert. And so I was around it um, and uh, realized that that's, you know, what I wanted to do when I, when I got, got older. So where did you go to college? I went to the Citadel. The military, Charleston, right? Carl yep. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina, military college. Third generation. Wow. So my granddad went there, class of 33. My dad was class of 60. And uh, we all have the same name. I'm the third. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and we're all engineers. Dad and, uh, and, and dad was an electrical engineer. I wasn't that smart, so I was a civil engineer. What's the most providence that you've ever heard of at the Citadel in terms of like generations going four through Four generations, I think. Four. I don't think I've heard of more than four. But and there's you were a three. Yeah, there's a handful of fours. So Is I your son going to go? Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. He might be watching. My, I have three sons, and two of them did not go. Uh, one's at SC right now. One graduated from Seattle U. My youngest is at, uh, in high school. And uh, I don't know if he goes or not. I, you know, the, the Citadel, like all military colleges, is not a place you go lightly because somebody tells you you should go. Mm -hmm. You really need to be motivated to go there. Yeah. Um, it's an adventure to go there. <laughs> you know, there's... Yeah, it can't just be like, oh, my dad wants me to go, right. so... I mean, yeah. people do that, but they don't last, right? You, you kind of have to have a little bit of steel to, to go put yourself through some of that. I know that's a question we actually asked for the Naval Academy. Um, we, we, like, it's a question that you're supposed to ask. 
are their parents pushing them to do this? Or <laughs> right. Are they self-motivated? So they actually say, so uh, what do your parents think about this? And they're like, oh, well, they want me to go, but I don't know if I want to. It's like, okay, you're out. Right, <laughs> right. Immediately. Yeah. But Citadel is great. I, I was just on the phone with a friend uh, before. You, that, that guy I was on the phone with when you came in yeah. was a Citadel Oh, grad. no kidding. And I met him when we were in Charleston. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Small world. Yeah, it is a small world. Yeah. So after the Citadel, you commissioned into the Air Force? I went to the Citadel on an ROTC scholarship. Okay. I was supposed to be an engineer. I was studying civil engineering. And, um, but I said, you know, I, I want to be a fighter pilot. Can I do that? Well, maybe, but we don't need to pay you to be a fighter pilot because a lot of people want to do that. So they were kind of threatening to take my scholarship away. So I yeah. had to do a little finagling and, and uh, show them that I had what it took or whatever. And, and the right stuff. So basically, I, gradu- I, I, I changed my career path while I was in college to, to go to pilot training. And then I went to a place called Shepard Air Force Base, which is in, in North Texas. But it was really it was kind of a special pilot training mm-hmm. uh, location. The, the pilot training there was called uh, Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training. It was specifically set up for the NATO countries to send their pilots to. So there were a lot of U.S. people there, and it was a, essentially a U.S. joint um, organization. And so going there was great because it was selective to get there. And then the, the syllabus was longer and you had actually more flights hmm. there than we had uh, in regular pilot training at the time. And then if, assuming you passed the course, you essentially were guaranteed to go on a fighter pilot track. Oh, so, wow. So, so that was like, okay, great. I can, I can go to Euro-NATO. I can, having known a bunch of NATO people you know, living in Europe, uh, I was excited to be there. So I was in a class with mostly Dutch and there was one German guy. And um, went through that, you know, I was fairly average for that class, you know, it's just kind of muddled But through. if you pass, you're guaranteed... Passed, a, uh, theoretically a guaranteed to be... What, what, what they do is they track you. They determine if you're, um, you know, qualified to fly, they call it FAR, Fighter Attack Reconnaissance. So if you, if you pass through that course, you got far essentially. Okay. You know, through a normal pilot training, there was a, there was another selection process, but you know, it was the, the numbers were lower. The chances of you getting fired were lower if you went to another pilot training base. So it was a hundred percent at this base. It wasn't a hundred percent. There was but a guy. Pretty close. It, it was pretty pretty high. I mean, there were there were a handful of folks that, that were there while I was there that graduated, but they didn't get fired, and so they went off the you know flight. So if you don't get fired, what do you end up flying? You end up flying a transport, you know, which is great. You know, like it's a fine. flying C five or a right. I remember one guy in the class right ahead of me was a got a one a C one forty one. We don't even fly those anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like a C seventeen. It's a transport. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I was C seventeens are nice transports. They're so. very nice transports. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're very cool. Um, you put in a dream sheet, and I, I put F sixteen at the top of my dream sheet. Uh, I put uh, I think I put an F four next, and then. I think third or fourth was an OV-10 because I thought to myself, if I don't get an F-16, uh, I'd like to get to an F-16 and get an opportunity. If I go to become a forward air controller in an OV-10, they had this path called a, a first assignment forward air controller. I can talk about what a forward air controller is in a, in a second, but the bottom line is that generally after one tour in the OV-10, you would end up in an F-16 or an F-15. You know, Do we have a picture of an OV-10? Oh, Andy? you know what? We, is that we have pictures. We do. <laughs> I forgot about So this is a picture of an OV-10. That's a picture right? of an OV-10. Yeah. Pop so that's that a. So that's a, that's an OV-10, and, um, and 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 that looked about like the OV-10s that I used to fly. So there, is, is there two props on this? There are two turbo props on it, 
and left and it, right wings, right? And then and then the big stabilizer up up in the back. What's the deal with that? It, yeah, it's just it, the way it's designed. The the horizontal stabilizer is high, and just across those two what we call uh, tail booms, uh -huh. and and um, the airplane was designed uh, and built in the mid '60s, predominantly for counterinsurgency, and it saw a lot of action in Vietnam uh, as a so what's a forward air controller? Let's talk about that. Yeah. A forward air controller is uh, generally in a permissive air environment. Permissive means you're not constantly getting shot at by radar guided missiles. So you already <laughs> own the air. You kind of own the air. I say kind of because there may be small arms. There may be some light uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Right. There's always a danger of a handheld uh, what we call a man-portable air defense system, right? right? Like a Stinger missile, right? Which is a heat-seeking missile. Somebody just put like a bazooka on their shoulder. But they don't shoot. have any like but they don't have installments the, the big, of anti-aircraft. Exactly. Because a forward air controller, it, like the OV-10, it, he or she is there to control airstrikes and sometimes other, like I was trained to control... Uh, um, you know, battle uh, artillery strikes as well as uh, ship, you know, bombardments, <laughs> right? So oh, yeah? I went through this whole joint firepower control course where I learned how to call in artillery. I learned how to deal with, with uh, Angelico, the, the naval liaison, gunfire liaison guy. And if I was with a battalion or in the air supporting our troops on the ground, I could bring in whatever kind of hell <laughs> that we needed to to support huh. them. Fi you know, fires in the, in the term. So, so troops on the ground would call directly to you. Exactly. And, and I then would, you, you determine, or, you know, you would how, pack how up with a, with a big stack of maps, right? And you would go out and one to 50,000 maps. That's the scale. Mm -hmm. And the scale is really good because in a one to 50, it's, it's kind of like riding in your car with a GPS at, you know, at 800 meters or one quarter of a mile. Mm -hmm. You can pretty much see every road on the ground. So you got to learn the terrain. You would have three or four radios on at once. One radio, you would be talking to a ground commander. On another radio, you would be talking to a controlling agency that's sending fighters to you saying, where are your targets? And you're picking out targets because the guys on the ground are getting shot or getting bombardment from an enemy position. And then you would have to find the enemy position with their help, mark it, and then bring in you know, fighters to drop bombs on that. And do that without, by the way, hitting the friendlies. Right? And you're, you're flying, too. <laughs> and you're doing all this Is that a single-seater? Yeah, so it's a two-seat airplane. Uh, you see the picture. It's a two-seat airplane, but, it, but generally we flew it single-seat. Now, you could have, in some cases, you had an observer in the back. The mm -hmm. Marines flew OV-10s all the way up into the Gulf War. In fact, they, they had an OV-10 shoot, got shot down in the Gulf War, and a Marine lieutenant colonel and, I think, a captain were, were captured as POWs for a week or two. Huh. This was in Gulf War I in 1990. You have weapons on this? We did. A cannon? So, Does it carry anything on the wings? or just? Yeah, so it, you can see the picture again. There's a 2.7-inch rockets, forward-firing rockets or folding huh. thing rockets, and you can... Uh, there are versions of those that have explosives. The versions that we carried had white phosphorus. They were used for marking, basically. You would shoot one at a spot on the ground. It would mark a target if you were accurate. If you were a little bit off, you'd have to say, okay, see my smoke? Okay, go one kilometer to the north. <laughs> you know, that's one the kilometer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you talk it, everything's in kilometers, yeah. typically. Well, um, that's a long way. But it, yeah, it's, it, it, exactly, it's, that's the point. 
Um, but you just use the white phosphorus as we uh, also, marking? We, or we had sometimes a, you hit some vehicles with it? Um, I mean, or you're not supposed to. <laughs> it okay. is purely a marking <laughs> weapon, nothing else. So You have to aim yes, at the vehicle behind the people yes type of thing? Yes and no. So the... the the Geneva Conventions, I think, outlawed, I think, I know, outlawed the use of white phosphorus directly against people. Right. Um, but I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> That's what we're here for, right? Um, so I went to fly OV-10s in Wheeler Air Force Base, Hawaii. And the, the great thing about that assignment, besides being on Oahu, right, and... and uh, living on the North Shore and doing a lot of, you know, body surfing. It's good, was, good assignment. We closed the squadron down um, after a year and four months. You know, this happens sometimes. We consolidate things. We move right. planes around. So we closed the squadron down. So the last few months we were there, we were really in, you know, training was winding down, and we had a lot of munitions that we had to expend, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we... Uh, I had an opportunity to go out on one of the ranges on one of the outlying islands with uh, those rocket pods you see under there. Each of them carried, I want to say, seven rockets. I think I had four rocket pods uh, with, with these rockets. And on this particular day, there, it, you know, they had a number of targets that were out there. They were, they were generally old trucks. Sometimes they're in the center of a concentric circle. They're designed for you to... Um, for a, you know, a pilot in training to, to practice gunnery. But um, on this particular day, I'm, I'm out there by myself. I'd done all the training I needed to do. I still had a couple of rockets left. And um, I saw you know, a fuel tanker truck that was a target. It was a legitimate target on this mm-hmm. wide open range, and it was sitting there. And I thought, I wonder if I could you know, hit that truck with a rocket. I had a three or four rockets left. So I come in in a normal rocket pass. It was about a 15-degree dive angle, and I shoot one, and just goes right over the top. So I come up, come around, you know, come in a second time, get a little better aim. And mind you, the OV-10 is, this is a caveman airplane. There's, there's yeah. you know, round dials. There's no magic computers. You're basically just placing the airplane and using Kentucky windage. Now, do sure. you have some sort of sight in the cockpit? That- there's a sight. But we, it's what we call an iron sight, a hard right. sight. So when we talk about F-16s, there's a computerized sight that moves, takes into account the wind and all this other stuff. But, but this, you've got to line your head up with the whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you've got to fly the airplane to the target, and you've got to point the target at the target. So the second time around, I, I, I come down this 15-degree dive angle, stand the throttles up, shoot. <sighs> I'm a little short. It, the, the rocket impacts just, just shy of the truck. All right, I think I have one rocket left. Come off, mm, come around, <laughs> you know. Okay, this is it. I, so I roll back in, 15 degrees or so a dive, set the throttles, and this time I push it just a little closer, you know. There are limits to how close you want to get when you're dropping a bomb or shooting uh-huh. a rocket because there's always a danger that, you know, well, How th- close are, are you? Well, I'm not going that fast, 180 or so kilometers okay. or miles an hour, nautical miles an hour, excuse me. And okay. um, so by the time I shoot this thing, I'm probably a mile, maybe half a mile away, you know, and I shoot it and I'm, you know, I'm going with the rocket. The rocket goes pretty fast, though, and it hits the truck and the truck blows up. <laughs> I mean, essentially, like boom, more, more than like in my face. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so, pull the stick back into my lap, you know, push the power up, 
pull off, look down. Wow, that was cool, <laughs> you know. And so, um, I scared myself. Just Why do you wee, think it was such a big explosion? Just a wee bit. I don't know. I think maybe the truck had been out there not that long, and there were some there were some residual. You know, it was one of these tanker trucks, like you see. That that, uh, that it was a military. One. You think it had like some unexploded ordnance? I, I don't think you, it had unexploded ordnance. I think it had uh, had fuel fumes in the tank. And it was just the right mixture. That and it was the right mixture. Yeah. I think, but it was a. It, it got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, so well, that's if, a fun aircraft. The OV ten. Yeah. The great thing about learning to fly in the OV-10, I mean, I wish I'd, I, there was a part of me that really wishes I'd have gone to an F-16 first, but the thing about an OV-10 is 180 knots, it was all math, it was clock to map to ground, the nat, you learn navigation, you learn how to use the stick and the rudder. I mean, when we taught people to fly F-16s, we said, don't touch the rudder pedals, <laughs> you know, you don't need to, and you know, you'll, something bad will happen. But it was very much... Um, how do you do like a controlled... Or what do you call it? A length turn? A control, a control uh, a coordinated turn. Coordinated, coordinated turn. Coordinated turn in F-16? It, it just does it for you. I <laughs> mean, you, you put the stick where you want, and you pull back, and the airplane turns. And, it, it, you, you know, Hal, uh, the airplane, the F-16, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but we'll talk F about the F-16 yeah. in a minute. Uh, we can talk about, you know, the F-16's flight controls here, because um, you, you know a little bit about that. But the bottom line is, being in the, being the OV-10 first in Hawaii, uh -huh. and then a couple things it really taught me. Um, taught me how to fly stick and rudder. Taught me how to navigate without the aid of computers. It taught me how to um, how to really feel, you know, the air over the wings. I mean, it was real, real flying. So you just had a stack of charts, like how it, practically, because mm -hmm. like on a sailboat, you've got like a nav desk, right? Right. And you have all of your charts in there, and you pull right. out the chart and you set it down on the desk. How do you do that in a cockpit? So Are they all the folded up. Yes. You get really good at folding Yeah, so them you back. have a map bag, right? And the map bag would, would go probably on one side of the, you know, the glare shield that's over the cockpit instruments mm -hmm. between that and the canopy itself. And we got very good at folding maps, organizing maps, you know, pulling out what you needed. Um, you would take a grease pencil and write on the inside of the canopy. I would never do that on an F-16 canopy, <laughs> right? Can F-16 canopy is probably a $2 million or something. I don't know what it is. But an OV-10 canopy, it was plexiglass. And if in an air control situation, we uh -huh. had a whole lot of, you might have two or three fighter pairs or two ships stacked up, right? Um, waiting for you to, uh, to call them in on a strike. And so you'd need to keep track of these pilots and these other planes and these other call signs. So you'd write down, you know, Mojo flight, two F-16s, you know, 500-pound bombs, you know, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Cylon flight, you know, two A-6s, you know, they would have cluster bombs or whatever, you know, and you, you would write all this stuff on a canopy huh. and you sort of, and then you have your maps out and you ge generally go big to small, like for traveling around from the base to wherever the training area was, I would have a, a one to 250,000 map. It was a, you know, kind of a big picture map. But when I got into the actual target area, then I would pull out the one to 50,000 maps and then you could get really detailed and you would measure, yeah. you know, this is, you know, three kilometers or two kilometers. And you'd put down a smoke, maybe a second smoke, and that would give you a unit of measure on the ground that everybody could see. You say, okay, see those two smokes? That distance between them is one kilometer and they are oriented north-south. Okay, now I have a reference. So now I could tell the F-16 pilot that I'm controlling, looking, using that reference, now I can, you know, direct you to where the target is. And more importantly, to where the friendlies are, right? Because How has this all changed? Because, you know, 
you can get pretty accurate. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that True. you get really good and you can put, put fire down where you need to. Right. But how has all this changed now that GPS is so widely available? Unreal how it's changed. So we'll get to the test pilot discussion here. Yeah. Later. But we did, when I was a, <laughs> here's the irony, right? I had to, I learned how to be a forward air controller with all these very rudimentary tools, right? And then I, years later, when I was an F-16 operational test pilot, um, we had a whole forward air control training program that I never actually went through um, because, you know, th there, there was this belief that, well, um, you know, it's very complicated and, you know, you need to learn how to use all the stuff. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, the stuff is complicated, the technology is complicated, but the basic elements Concepts. of it, using the technology, once you figure it out, is easier yeah. and more accurate than it was back in the old days, back in the OB-10 days. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we had, I mean, there's GPS, there's, there's laser marking, uh, there is video. I, I can, in an F-16 today, I can take real-time video right, from a targeting pod, and I can beam it to an Army commander on the ground. And he can see what I'm seeing, and he can say, yeah, in that note, building left of that, one building over, one more building over, okay, the third window to the right, there's where the enemy is. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the kind so of... That's so cool. Yeah, it's very cool <laughs> as far as being very accurate, you know, and being, and frankly, being safe for Americans on the ground that you're yeah. not going to hit the wrong one. Because everybody knows what you're... Everybody's seen the picture. On the same like, confirmed that is where it needs to go. And better yet, the, the thing about being a forward air controller is there's a lot of talking. You can't do this job without a lot of without a lot of jabber. Jabber's a problem in war right, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're going to jam your radios, right? right. <laughs> so, and, and then if they're not jamming your radios, they're listening, right? So, what you want to be able to do, what you can do now, is do all this via data link. I can have a complete. Aren't uh, all our radios encrypted though? Or no? They, they are. They are. But, I mean, you know, in, in, in 1986, you know, we had, we had have quick. We had a bit of a, a frequency hopping scheme. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, that's a whole other... But frequency hopping isn't encrypted. No. You, but, and, but it's and then, just harder And then you have encrypted, but then sometimes, invariably, okay? And this happens in training. It happens in combat. It's too much of a pain in the ass, so it gets turned off. People just can't get on. They can't, and you can't, <laughs> so and, then you turn it up. Well, yeah, you know, you, you got three, you, you have four or five people on a team, and two of them can get on, or three of them can talk to each other, but two of them can't. And then what do you do? You turn you know, it off. You turn it off. Isn't that fascinating? Because <laughs> isn't that the story for everything technology related? Totally. Like, everybody, okay, we got to be secure. Security is our priority. But then it gets in the way of what you're trying to do, so people just throw it out the window, and that's how bad stuff happens. I mean, it's like passwords. Exactly. You know, people set up, I, I, your organization probably has password requirements where it's like, oh, and uh, they capital, every and oh yeah, uh, uh, uppercase, yeah. lowercase, yeah. exclamation point, all this yeah. stuff, <laughs> right. and then you have to change it every 15 days. Yeah. So then what do people do? They start writing they write it on it a sticky note. <laughs> yeah. They leave it on your computer. And that's the equivalent, right? With right. encryption, like, oh, we don't want the enemy listening in. Right. Oh, but, you know, you know, Sergeant so-and-so can't get on the radio. And then, wait, you guys have been operating without encryption for the last couple of weeks? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's we, everywhere. And even if you do the encryption, though, you can still get jammed. Yeah. You know? And so, and sometimes you get jammed by yourself. You know, we had, we, famously, the after... The EA-6B rolls in and nobody can... Well, that, yeah, the EA-6B is a great example. 
Um, the other great example is all the IUDs, uh, the improvised explosive device. IUD is different than <laughs> IED. Sorry. I think IED, I, yeah. IUD correct. does do some jamming. <laughs> it does some jamming, but not the kind we're talking about. Um, improvised explosive devices, we had uh, a war, the, the Warlock, I think is what they call it. This happened after I flew in the Gulf War II, Operation Rocky Freedom. But the, they would have a Warlock on constantly to jam the telephone signals that insurgents were using to blow up IEDs, right? When, mm -hmm. when U.S. or coalition troops were near this IED, they would use a cell phone. So they would have a jamming device that would jam that signal so that the IED could not be blown up. The problem with the jamming device is it jammed the radios too. You would constantly hear this, you know, in the, in the radio. I thought, you know, I, I don't know. I thought all that stuff was designed to, I thought the, because I can make, I'm an engineer, right? Yeah. Systems, I can make a jammer. I have made a jammer. Jeez. It's not hard. <laughs> right. I thought the whole point behind like the EA6B jamming suite was that it jammed their stuff, but, but we got ours. through it. Yeah. But I guess it's not all, it's all, it, it doesn't play as nice as maybe. Well, you know, uh, being an engineer, that, that the, the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum is a very interesting place. And it's finite, whole, right? <laughs> and it's finite, right. And there's, and there's overlap. And yeah, flying with the EA-6Bs, that was, you, know, you couldn't talk to them when they turned everything on. Huh. So, That's we, interesting. We, we did that a lot, too. We can talk about that. Here there is second. some fascinating stuff. You know, I'm going to nerd out on this a little bit. Sure. But there's some fascinating stuff I know that does frequency hopping. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it can actually detect below the noise floor. Yeah. There's some really high-tech stuff that the, the, these signals guys can get into. It's basically jam-proof. Right. Well, I'll tell, you know, I'll tell you and the, and, the, and the members of the audience here that, you know, all the stuff I'm talking about, this is 20, 30-year-old technology now. Even the leading-edge stuff that I flew when I was an operational test pilot, I was on the leading edge of, of the F-16 in... This is in 2005 to 2007. You know, check your watch. It's, it's yeah. 2020. And this, you know, there's about a, there's a bu bunch of folks that probably have flown more recently than me that are yawning going, yeah, whatever. Dude. It's that, still pretty cool because it's, it's the cool, only place it exists, right? It's, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, we move beyond it. You know, if you do, you, you're basically talking about an iPod. Right. Right. You know, but yeah. nobody's making iPod. Like, there's, there's, <laughs> exactly. There's no competition. I still in the space. have a couple in my drawer <laughs> back home, so... Okay, so where were we? So we were so, talking about so, OV-10s. We yeah, kind of got off track. And, and uh, yeah, the OV-10 is you know, so great assignment. And uh, I did have a thing? question for you about yeah, that. Please, so go. what's the difference between a forward air controller and OV-10? Mm -hmm. And the, I guess it would be a combat forward air controller, which is like the Air Force Special Forces guys. Okay, so. Because um, there's PJs and there's, there's combat controllers. Combat controllers. Yeah. Um, Are they doing the same thing, but. Yeah, so I had on the ground. So I had sort of I, I, I led a double life, so to speak, when I was when I flew OV-10s, because uh, you, I'll get to the point to answer your question in in just a moment. As an OV-10 forward air controller, I had a mission to fly the OV-10 and and control airstrikes from the cockpit. But I also, frankly, dirty little secret, that wasn't my combat mission. If we were to go to war, if the balloon went up, so to speak. My other primary duty, which would become my primary duty, would be to go with an army unit as an air liaison officer and be with them wherever they were, on the front lines, you know, in reserve, wherever, and work closely with their commander and their, their, their S3, their operations officer, to be the air force that they need. If, 
if I, and, and so I was assigned to a cavalry unit at Fort Riley, Kansas, and I used to go out and train with them. And I really developed great bonds with those guys because they're just a lot of fun, you know. The cav is a whole nother, we could talk an hour just on, on the cav, the air cav and the armored cav. But, but the bottom line is my job, real job would have been, had the balloon go up for me to be with them, to call in airstrikes from the ground, to look right at the army commander in the eye and say, you know, where do you need support? Where do you need fire support? And make that happen for them. Now, to answer your question, there are a number of Air Force, uh, you know, airmen that work in ground role, ground combat roles. And uh, combat controllers, their job is essentially to go in and set up um, expedient airfields that then can be used for dropping supplies, you know, in places where there wasn't an airfield before. So they control essentially the the delivery of supplies and or troops in faraway places. But they have to be completely self-sufficient to, in order to get into those places, you know, they, they don't get in walking, but generally they, they are special operators. They, they go in with special operators. So their job is, so when the plane, yeah. so they can get the plane on the ground. They can get the plane, on, well, they go in, they scout out the place, they set up runways. They basically put lights So when the, on the pilots ground. and the crew get out, they don't get ambushed or, or lit too. up by, by some guys that they that don't too. know that are there. Exactly, and then you ask about PJs, so pararescue men, PJs, their predominant job is in the rescue business. They are, they're snake eaters, man. They, they're the ones that, you'll have a helicopter. If I were to have gotten shot down in combat, the, the helicopter ideally would come in and find me, and a PJ would be the one that would pull me out of the desert or the jungle or wherever I was. They hit the ground, and, you know, very small groups, uh, obviously just a couple of PJs on a helicopter, and, and I think they're on HC-130s and some other special ops airplanes, but they're the ones that essentially do that rescue. Hmm. And, you know, I didn't go through PJ school. I understand. But and we could argue. You, you know, get a bunch of special operators. They'll argue about which school is the hardest. But I've right. heard PJ school is the hardest. Well, I think Bud's <laughs> is the hardest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But you know what we missed in our chronology here? Yeah, is yeah. We're, you, we're all over the map. You went but let's to go. SEER. Yeah. What's it SEER stand for? Is it survival, survival uh, Evasion, Rescue. And Escape. So, and Escape. Yeah. SEER school. SEER school. I did. Which is pretty, pretty legit. It's, and, and, it's in the 80s, right? I did. In, it was 1986. So after I graduated from pilot training at Shepard, before I went to OV-10 training, I went, you know, you go through this pipeline. And before SEER got easy. Before, uh, hey, you got, there's a picture. Let's talk pictures. There's pictures. There's a picture of like four, yeah, that one. The one that you got up. You're, that's good, see? <laughs> so you can see there's a T-38. So training. bottom left here. But you see the bottom left, you see a guy. He's, he's in evasion and escape and school. And then to the right of that, I don't know if you can see it, the picture in picture maybe, oh, but, th but there's a water survival. So you go through land survival, SEER, and water survival. And the land survival and SEER were at Fairchild or outside of Fairchild Air Force Base, which is in near Spokane, Washington. And I went in the summertime, so it was kind of so like So water, water survival is just like float, and anybody who can pick you up, Make sure that they pick you up. <laughs> you're, you're not picky. You know, essentially, it, it is. You, you, you learn, a, yeah. Essentially, it's a pretty easy course. It's a pretty fun course. It was down at Homestead Air Force Base, Florida for a while. Mm -hmm. The hardest part of that course was sitting in a raft literally all day long by yourself in the Biscayne Bay. And you, you got a cornflake bar, and you, you had to attempt to try to catch a fish or something. I mean, you're just sitting in this raft in salt water. You catch a fish? No. <laughs> I don't think now, anybody catches When you're in the land part, the sear part, 
Did you catch any food? So there was two parts to the to the to land survival. Um, the first part was the survival part, and then there was the the second part, which we won't talk about. But it was essentially the what happens if you get captured part. So this is where they make you run. They make you run. They eventually catch you because they always win. They do. And they, they beat send the a shit bunch out of, of fun. you. Yeah. <laughs> they they send a bunch of people after you. They they start out nice. You go as a group, uh-huh. and and in the group you you learn really. Ba- okay, how do I? Here I am. I'm on the ground, but it's, un, it's unrealistic in the sense that you have a SEER instructor who's a young airman. He's probably like 22 years old, but he's a real s- survival expert, right? And he, he'll, he, in this case, it was a he, um, you know, you're in this group of, you know, seven or eight aviators or prospective aviators, and they go, okay, you got your parachute material, you know, you got your logs, you got your fire starter, you know, I'm going to teach you how to do all the stuff you need to do, how to build a shelter, how to hunker down, how to camouflage yourself. How do you, first things you do if you ever have to jump, jump out of an airplane, you know, there's, a, there's an ejection seat here, by the way. If yeah. You um, and, and, and behind enemy lines. So how to hunker down, how to hide, and then how, and then after we learn those basic skills, and that involves, you know, you, you get a bunny rabbit, you kill it, you eat it, you know, you eat the eyeballs. Um, you try to go find and forage for other food. Why do you eat the eyeballs? Uh, well, because they're very Just nutritious. Just because it's gross? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you well, get the rest of the rabbit, too, right? They tell you that they're really nutritious. You eat the rest of the rabbit, too. It's, yeah. There's something about the salt in the eyeballs that, you know, you, okay. need, you need that... Salt, you know, evidently. That's what they I think told me. They're just me. messing with you. <laughs> I think you got so. a whole rabbit. I mean, there's only two eyeballs, and there's you know eight okay. guys out there. So, so, uh, but you learn how to build a fire out of nothing, and and, uh-huh. and then you learn how to escape and evade, right? So that, so then it gets a little bit harder where they they break you up and, okay, you you know now you're onesie twosies and just eventually just a single person, and then they've got these these guys that they know that every inch. They teach you some basic navigation, which, you know, if you don't know it, you, they, they teach it to you with a, with a compass and a map. And, okay, and this is really counting paces. You know, you're going up and down hills. Right. You're checking elevation. But then you've got to do that by yourself being chased, right? And so, so now you're painted up like, like this guy was in the picture, and you're, you know, evading, and you're trying to be very, very quiet, and people are walking around you, and eventually they catch you because they, they know. They know where all the good places to hide Does are. Does anybody ever? I don't know. Do, do you, is there like a prize if you last a certain amount of time? <laughs> I think, uh, I think there was. Uh, you know, this is a long time ago. There's a I didn't legend the of a man who did not get <laughs> captured. There's a legend of a man who did not get captured. Who, um, but, but you know, I had a, it was fun. That part was fun. Yeah. And even playing, it's playing hide and seek as a grown up, and uh-huh. and you're camping in the woods, and you're hunkered down, and you're bivy, you're bivying. But nothing. I mean, when I play hide and seek, yeah. like when 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 your friends catch you, they don't beat the shit out of you. True. <laughs> Because yeah. I, I guess you, I guess nobody can talk about what happens next, right? But the idea is, is, is they they train you um, for like if the enemy captures you, they, to they try torture, to simulate. Right? They try to simulate how things could be if the enemy captures you. That's about as far as I can. It's all ever. It's <laughs> all anybody ever says. That's all anybody ever says about that part, yeah, right? That's all. They, but I will but, tell you this. But you did it in the '80s, so I'm assuming that it was worse than it is in 2020. Well, well I didn't I go know. in 2020. Maybe, <laughs> maybe so. in 2020 they're just as hard as they always were. But I, I, yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. Um, I, it's a good. It, you know, it's a. It, like many experiences which test people, it's yeah. one of those experiences that test you, that make you introspective and kind of go, hmm, I didn't. They know. teach you how to escape, though. Um, 
they give you some thoughts about how you could escape. <laughs> I don't know that anybody ever has. <laughs> there was a legend of one guy. There's a legend of one who guy. completed all S E R E. Yeah. You know, he actually escaped. Yeah. There's, a, you know, uh, yeah. It's it's a it was it was it was a stress that was stressful stressing right. experience that was I bet. that was how they that's how they do it and you know you can imagine what that is you can read about stressful experiences it dip, it dip generally involves not much sleep for a long period of time we'll right. start with that I mean that's you the know, easiest way yeah that's you know. the easiest way and then there's and then there's a variety of other you know things they get you to do so yeah um, the bottom line of that whole thing was you know the coolest part when you're done with all that it's like three weeks long. The whole, the whole thing. I'm talking going out, the, the initial woods part, the escape and evasion, the other thing. Um, then you get back to the barracks. You know, you might have lost a couple pounds, but you're, but you're talking to your buddies about, wow, you know, wow. <laughs> you know, and yeah. then everybody's grabbing pizza and it, it, you get a case of this beer. This is so much better than rabbit eyes. This is so much better <laughs> than rabbit eyes. So I have the, my fondest memories of being at Sear School was the, the end of Sear School. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yay, it's yeah, over. We're done. <laughs> I've done that. Check, done. Did that pizza and beer out. Yeah. So All right, so, so we kind of digressed. And then the, we digressed. So, so after the Bronco, how did you get into... The so Fighting I, Falcon. So I thought I was going to go. So I went, I went from Hawaii, my first assignment, for about a year and eight months to Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina, about another year and eight months. The flying was similar. It was different, but similar. It was a great assignment, too. Um, got married along the way. We, you know, and it was, it was uh, about after about two and a half years, um, the system says, okay. It's time for you to go do something else. System. <laughs> you know? I love the system. system. <laughs> I worked. I, I actually worked in the system later. The computer in, in has told me you worked as a um, a detailer. Or yeah, what, what yeah, yeah. The them? Navy detailers? calls them detailers. I was an assignments officer. Okay. At one point, I was the. I was the. You chief were part of, of the system. I was the system. You were a cog in the system. Oh, dude, I was the cogest cog. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, people were people. I. So I digress, but I'll just say, since you asked, it's not a flying story, but it was a great assignment. I was in San Antonio, Texas, as the chief of fighter assignments in my last year and a half there in what we call the fighter porch. It was called a porch because it was this old World War II building, and there used to be porches all the way around it. Mm -hmm. They enclosed the porches, so this was the, an office, but it was like a porch. It was a long, skinny office. And um, I knew approximately every F-16 pilot in the Air Force. I just knew I knew their names. I knew who they were, for, but for a time they all called me for their assignment. And to the you know to, for the rest of my career, mm -hmm. I knew these guys, and they knew me. They're like, oh, it's that guy, you know. And a lot of them had, yeah. You, they you all know, like you. I'd say some of them like me, and then there were some that See, were I have like a theory. that son of a. You know? Maybe you can <laughs> confirm this, but I have a theory yeah, right. that if you are a detailer, or what do you call it, an assignments uh, assignment officer? officer yeah. So assignments but, officer. Now it doesn't sound as sexy as detailer. Yeah, but <laughs> basically. You know, the jail calls you up. It's like, hey, so, um, you know, am I going to get the assignment that I want? And you can either say one or two things. It's like, yep, I hooked you up, man. <laughs> I got right. you. I got you what you wanted. Or you can be like, you know what? It's just the system, man. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, like, blah, 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 quality spread, blah, 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 blah. blah, 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 blah. System. But it's the system. <laughs> and it, at the end of the day, you put them wherever you put them. But you either get to be the hero or you get to pawn it off on the the system. Yeah. Is that really what it is? Um, There's going to be some The guys. short answer is yes and no. The, the longer answer is th there are going to be people that end up getting bad assignments, perceived oh, yeah. as bad. W what I try to do is own up to, hey, here's why 
you need to go do this. It was mm -hmm. a conversation. I didn't usually try to pawn it off on a system. And I think, you know, when you talk about your batting average in an assignment like that, I think I had a pretty good batting average because I was an honest broker with folks, or I tried to be. And I mean, so, that's uh, a batting average, like <laughs> the number of people yeah, that you get number one choice? Like? I would say, no, I, I sort of use that as, a, as an analogy for how many people were happy with their assignment or how many people were just pissed, you know? Yeah. But generally, they might have been pissed, but they weren't really pissed at me so much as I, I just explained to them. Let me just explain to you, you've never done these things that are considered bad or hard you know, in your career. You've led a charmed life. And the way the system works is we share the pain. It's your time for the pain. <laughs> you know? I mean, and that's, that was the gist of the story. You've had a pretty good run of things. I had You've had some good, 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 good assignments and blah, blah, blah. I had an amazingly blah, blah. blessed. So it's time for you to take, a, take an assignment in North oh, yeah, Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So That's interesting. So I went to F-16s. The timing of that was interesting because I left um, Did Shaw. you get to assign yourself to F-16s? Or was serving as the assignment officer? I assigned officer? myself as an assignments officer, kind of, um, to Spangdalem Air Base, Germany, which worked out well for me. Uh, but I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did. But, but I also had a, I had a request from leadership there for me to go there. Is assignments officer one of those things where you get to write your ticket after it? Kind of. Yeah. So that, I guess that's a reward for the hard assignment that it is, theoretically. Right. <laughs> so. No, there's assignments in the Navy. Like, I remember if you, if you did a, uh, what was it called? Um, an IA assignment, individual augmentee, yeah. which is basically they needed a warm lieutenant somewhere right. in Afghanistan or Iraq right. so, uh, to do whatever BS lieutenant yeah. job they needed. Yeah. You got to do whatever you wanted after that. Like that was the penance, right? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always stuff like that. But you got yeah, you got to spread out the the bad assignments. I guess and I, you know, and I took I took what was considered a bad assignment. Being OV10 fact was considered a bad assignment. Really, there were people in my OV10 squadron that flew fighters for a couple of years, and they and then that was a downgrade to them. See, for me, it w worked out good because I started out in a slow propeller airplane, and then I upgraded to an F16. So, you know, from my perspective, it, things got better. You know, that, there's a hierarchy of what airplane's the best or the coolest, right? We could talk about that. Is OV10's not at the bottom, is it? I think for some people it was considered not the bottom, but throw one under the bus. What's the what's the lowest one on the list? Throw wow. it right under the bus. I will just tell you what I. It's funny how time gives you perspective. All right. So when I was in pilot training, I, I did not want to fly an F one eleven. An F one eleven is a great airplane. It's and a fighter, right? It is. But, like but, a long range? But to me, it was like, it was, you know, it, it wasn't as maneuverable. It was fast as all get out. I mean, it, it would go like a scalded ape. <laughs> but, and it was, you know, it had great range. I mean, it was a it's a great airplane. By all accounts, it's a great airplane. But at the time, when I was 22, I thought to myself, well, in the hierarchy of fighters, you know, multi-role, air-to-air, air-to-ground, the 111 didn't do air-to-air -air very well, maybe, maybe at all. Um, I, I knew they... They were Vietnam era, but so was an F-4. But an F-4 had sort of a panache about it because it had been right. around since the 50s. Everybody wanted to fly an F-4. So I kind of put that, I put a 111 lower on my dream sheet than an OV-10, personally. Some people Okay, so, but these are all fighters, though, right? But what yeah. about the rest of the Air, oh, Air Force? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I think um, uh, 
for anybody that's out there listening, it's going to throw eggs, right? But, is, it C, <laughs> is it the C5? You know, my brother-in-law flew C5s and loved it. Um, I, I, but I'm don't they like, think, they never I, you know, take I didn't off. Wanna fly, I didn't want to fly B-52s. I thought a B-52 was like, eh, you know, be, yeah. sitting nuke alert. You're sitting in, in Minot, North Dakota. I mean, if you have to do your job, right. bad yeah, day. Yeah, that's bad, right? Bad day. You're probably yeah. not coming back, but right? But so when I'm in the test community years later, I flew a B-52, and I, th- I it was awesome. And I thought, this yeah. is a great airplane. I mean, the thing's... It's the longest flying airplane in the Air Force, you know. But is C five on the bottom of the list? I don't I know. Feel like I mean, that thing, the only again, exposure I had yeah. was taking like Space A flights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that thing never took off. C C five flight, and you look, and you know, I'd be like, "Oh, cool, we're gonna go." No, <laughs> it's broken. This broke. That broke. Yeah. Whatever. It broke a lot. My brother in law could tell some serious C five broke stories. Because, again, he flew them for years at, at Dover Air Force Base. Um, yeah, that's where I flew out of, yeah. Dover. Never yeah. took off on a C-5. But here's the thing. When you're, when you're my age, in my mid to late 50s, and I flew once upon a time, there's no such thing as a bad airplane. You know, when you're 20 and you go, yeah, I want to be the sh- I want to fly the shit hottest, coolest fighter, then you, you get wrapped around the axle about, ah, I don't want to fly that. That's junk or this is junk. But well, also, it sounds like you got like, to fly a lot of them. I, I, I did. Which I know... You know, if I had to fly one aircraft, I'd want to fly this one. Right. Right? But if I get to fly all of them, I have a better perspective. I'm like, ah, oh, no, they're all cool. It's like right. cars, right? Yeah. If you have to pick one car, you're not going to pick a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. But I'd still love to have a Volkswagen Beetle put around <laughs> in every once in a while. It'd right. be fun, right? Or well, a Mazda Miata. So you, yeah. have, you have pilots that are here, some military yeah. pilots in the organization. They're probably watching, you know, and they'll tell you that you're, whatever you fly is the best. Yeah. It, you, you know, we, when I was an early F-16 pilot, we made fun of F-15s all the time. F-15 is a great airplane. Great airplane. F-15 pilots, you know, we call them ego drivers. It's the Eagle jet, but it's the ego jet. Yeah. You know? we, we made fun of them But the F-16 is arguably, or objectively, I guess, the Air Force's plane. I mean, as much as the F-18 uh, is the Navy's plane. Yeah. The so, F-16, I mean, again, there's what, more what, of are, the, what are the Falcons yeah. fly? They're, 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 they fly the, the Fighting Falcon, yeah, right? The Thunderbirds. Yeah. Thunderbirds fly F-16s, yeah. exactly. And, and the Blue Angels fly F-18s. They do. Right? They do. So, now, someday the F-16, the, the, the Thunderbirds will fly F-35s. I think oh, is ever, are all those demonstration teams going to fly the F-35? Not that it's not a cool plane, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the, well, you know, this, the, uh, the, the, sorry, the Blue Angels are just this season now switching over from the 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 Legacy Hornet, so that the, the A, B, C, and D are called the Legacy Hornets, uh-huh. to the Super Hornet, which is, looks like a Hornet, but it's a little bigger, the E and F version. They're mm. just, this the year, they're, this is their first season with the Super. And it'll be interesting to see how the shows, if they change the shows much. Because they're bigger, they're more powerful, they, they, there's some things they probably do yeah. in some ways better, maybe some things they do not as well. You know, It's like when they went from F4s to A6s. And the F35, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Thunderbirds, same thing. They did F4s and then they did T38s, and like, well, it's a trainer, but it was smaller, lighter. In some ways, you know, it's just different. It's a different show. So that is interesting because, you know, I I was looking up the F-16. The F-16 is the first fighter that they made that has negative static stability. Right. So basically, from what I understand, and correct me because you're you're the man. (laughs) Today I'm the man. That means that the plane basically will not fly. <laughs> like, it, it, it's not inherently stable. Like, normally, like, I, I throw a paper airplane, the paper airplane goes, right? right? So the F-16 is negatively stable. So if, it, if it's just going, unless it's supersonic, yeah. 
it will oscillate its attitude, and those oscillations will build Yeah, so the S16 it, has a fly-by-wire or a, or a digital, now they're digital flight control system. So when you say fly-by-wire, that means technically a computer is flying this thing. It means that the pilot gets a vote, <laughs> and, and the computer gets a vote, and there are, uh, there are four flight control channels. They're, they're digital. When you make a stick or a rudder input, um, it goes to a flight control computer to ensure that takes that input and also looks at the air data sensors, the static and the dynamic air data sensors, to determine if the airplane can do what you're asking it to do. And it, impose li it imposes limits to a certain extent on what the pilot asks of it. Can you just take a picture? There's a picture of, um, uh, yeah, there's a F-16 where you see the bombs on the bottom. Let's just show that first. Yeah, that one. So that's a, that's, that's a F-16 loaded for combat. When you first learn to fly an F-16 mm -hmm. at, at, at Luke Air Force Base where I was, they don't look like this. They, they don't have any tanks on them. They, you know, this one has, if you go you know, from top to bottom, it's got uh, a radar-guided missile, a heat-seeking missile, another radar-guided missile, a wing tank, an electronic jamming pod, another pod, another wing tank, another missile, another missile, another missile. But when you, fly it, when you first learn to fly them, you fly them clean, which means they have nothing on them. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're magnificent in that, in that phase, you know, because <laughs> they're lightweight and they turn and they, they're just awesome. But when you have stuff on them, you, you have limits on the amount of Gs you can pull. And when you get slow, you've heard about stalls, uh -huh. theoretically the F-16 doesn't stall, but what it, what it will do is it won't allow you to get into a stalled condition, essentially. The computer reduces the angle of attack uh, maximum that you can command with the stick when you're at a certain air, you know. And that's not true of other aircraft, like the F-15 or the F-18? Uh, or I, I can't speak for all versions of the F-18. I think it's not true. Uh, I think it's uh, the, the, the current F-18s, the Super Hornets do that. But, but let's go back a generation. Let's say like the F-4, F-86, F-100. All of those, none of those had, had any So you of, could stall it? Absolutely. And you, and you can theoretically stall an F-16 too, but, it, but it, it, it's a completely different stall. So what's the, what's the advantage of having this negative stability on well, an aircraft? Well, two, two big advantages. One, it makes it a lot easier to fly, right? Because the computer is doing a lot of stuff for you. The other big advantage, what it really means is, is you've got positive lift on both the wing and the tail plan. Um, in, in most conventional airplanes, you have positive lift on the wing, right? Think about the wing, and then you have negative lift on the tail, and that gives you a sort of a balance, right? Mm -hmm. um, the F-16 basically has positive lift on both. Now, you can't fly like that without, you know, a lot of help constantly making inputs uh, with the control surfaces to ensure that the airplane doesn't get into this oscillation that you, that you read about. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but having positive lift on both means essentially your effective uh, lift is, is higher than it would be. You're not fighting against the tail negative lift when you pull back on the stick. Okay. And so it's more efficient. Huh. Yeah. And, and what about power in this plane? How fast can it go? 2.02 um, Mach max normally. Uh, How fast I never, have you been? Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> That's the next one. Uh, I want to say 1.46. I was an FC, a functional check flight pilot, and uh, there were a couple times. You had to go mock. And it's hard to get going fast in all versions of the F-16. Uh, you know, you had to have a clean jet, you know, nothing on it. And you run out of gas pretty quick when you don't have wing tanks, when you're in full afterburner. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, so when do you go that fast? Why, why would you go that fast? Uh, for combat reasons, you would do it because you want to, um, 
you know, generally it's a survival thing. It's to get to the fight quicker, and it's to impart greater energy on your weapons. The most obvious example is on an air-to-air -air weapon. If I'm shooting a radar-guided missile, um, if I'm higher and faster, then my radar-guided missile will have considerably more range. And the trick, when you are in a dogfight, I, you know, I use that term because most people, laymen, understand that it means an air-to-air -air engagement. Mm -hmm. um, generally, in 2020 and even in 2007 or 2009, when, when I stopped fighting, uh, flying, you, in combat, would likely never get into a, a close-in visual dogfight. And if you did, some body would not survive that. <laughs> and maybe both would not survive it because it's generally unhealthy to get slow and low in a turning fight in over... So you're saying practically there is no... Yeah, being inverted. All that stuff is really cool. Hitting the brakes and having them fly having right by. Fly right by. That does not happen. It happens <laughs> in training all the time. And it's an important skill to have and to, to develop in a fighter pilot. But for practical purposes, the days of a visual merge as a desired outcome of an engagement are long gone. And the reason that is, is the, the, the weapons that you have on, that you, that you might have and that any prospective enemy might have are so lethal in close that somebody's gonna die. And you know, so it's, hopefully it's not you, but could be, right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the, just the air-to-air -air heat-seeking missiles are incredible today. Essentially with a helmet-mounted sight, go, go to the cockpit picture in green. You'll see a couple of cockpit pictures. So you can see this is a picture of me in the test community. There's no grease pencil on that canopy. There's no, that canopy is clean, man. <laughs> but the other thing about it is, is you can see this big old, look at my helmet. It looks like this great big huge cranium, right? Yeah. And the reason it is is because I've got a helmet-mounted sight on top of that. There's essentially an electronics unit, and the glass on this particular, you know, uh, sight uh, visor is expensive, when you bring it down, it projects the symbology that I would see on my heads-up display onto the visor. And the great thing about that is my heads-up display in an F-16 is right in front of me. So if I want to use that symbology to shoot something, I have to turn my airplane and point it at what I'm trying to shoot. Hmm. With a helmet-mounted display, I can look and I can point my weapons and sensors at something. And when know, did we have that technology? On my wing line. Well, we started flying with Hemex um, in the early 2000s. I was, this was in, that picture was taken in eh, somewhere between 2005 and 2007. I think it was closer to 2007. And we were, and we were getting them in the field, you know. Uh, we were testing them, but we were getting, we, they, they were going out to operational units. It's interesting because, you know, in the civilian world, what we call that today is augmented reality. It is kind of, but right. remember, you're still seeing the world. All you're seeing is a symbol on top of the world. Right. That, yeah. That's exactly what augmented reality is. Like, right. have you ever put on those Google glasses? Yeah. No, I haven't. But I, I think yeah, they're pretty awful compared to what you describe, right? Because you have the whole visor. <laughs> right. But even like you know Microsoft Hololens and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, they're they're trying to push that. It's just interesting that the the military had such a advanced um, augmented reality system. Yeah. The, the, you call it the Hemex. Yeah, helmet-mounted helmet cueing system. Hey, 
Yeah, I'm going to try not to have a lot of acronyms in this discussion yeah. because, you know, it's acronym city. Oh, you know how to communicate with, with the civilians. <laughs> it's important. I right? attempt to try to be able to communicate with civilians. I do, I do talk to some, some buddies that are still in the Navy, yeah. and they talk to me like I'm still in the Navy. Right. I'm like, dude, you know, <laughs> like I'm sort of tracking, but like 90% of what you're saying is acronyms. And I'm just trying to get it by I'm context not. right exactly. now. I don't know. Like, they've all changed. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the cool thing about, what, going back to the dogfighting thing, if, I am, if I'm in a dogfight, I can now, with an advanced AIM-9 uh, Sidewinder missile, we call them side, we don't, nobody calls them a Sidewinder, but that's what they're called, right? AIM-9X is the most advanced version. Why doesn't anybody call them a Sidewinder? It's a funny thing about nicknames in the military. It's like the military establishment gives a nickname to something, and then the people that use it don't use the nickname. A great example is the F-16 Fighting Falcon. I don't know anybody that flew the F-16 that called it the Fighting Falcon. What do they call it? Viper, generally. That was Viper? Viper. Viper. Yeah, the Vi Viper uh, was what... Disparagingly in Like the early... from Battlestar Galactica Viper? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't think it, I think it came from before that. I think they, they were calling F-16s Vipers um, probably in the you know in in, in the early '80s. You know, um, the I, I hear that the F-35 Lightning II, you know, or Thunderbolt is it Thunderbolt II? Lightning Lightning II, excuse me, um, is called the Panther by by operators. Yeah, because it's because it's silent and killer. It's a silent killer <laughs> like a Panther. I, you know. Um, the the A-10 is the Thunderbolt, too. I'm sorry. Nobody ever called it that. It's the the A-10, the, the Warthog, right? The Warthog, the Hawk. Yeah. You know? But the official Air Force name is... And so when you call... Uh, when you're talking about your missiles, um, generally you, you call a, a advanced medium... You, a lot of people call that an AMRAM because that's what it's called. It doesn't have a, really a nickname. But a Sidewinder is generally called a 9X uh, you know, or, or, a, or a 9 Mike or a 9 Lima for the older versions. So anyway... The 9X Sidewinder missile today, you know, can shoot like this far back from, it's pointed like this, I can shoot it, and it'll go turn a corner. You're making the symbol for like 180 degrees. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so basically, so you if can I'm look sitting left in my cockpit right, and, and I'm looking can... left or right, you know, to my wing line or maybe even slightly beyond it, if I'm in a, do a slow dogfight with somebody, I can take my hammocks, I can look at the MIG. I can designate the MIG with the symbology. So the symbology is on the thing. I hand it on the airplane, my enemy. I hand that symbology off through the computer to the 9X missile. It comes off the rail, and it does a really sharp turn, and it's going to hit that dude. And he's got the same thing. I mean, the, the, um, we called them the AA-11. That was the, that's the NATO designation for the... Uh, I can't read the R-43. I'm, I'm stretching now without my aviation week in front of me. But anyway, the, the Russians build the same kind of thing. It's just right. a really good all-aspect heat-seeking missile. So bottom line, dogfights, cool in training, not so cool in combat. Probably dead. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe both of you. But that was, that was the plot at Top Gun. You know, the, the opening to Top Gun, why they went to Top right. Gun is like the pilots these days have right. been, become more or too dependent on missiles. We could argue that you might get into a dogfight not by choice, but, but because the other issue that happens, we're not going to talk politics, but I'll just say there's rules of engagement. And in certain wartime scenarios, you may have to have a visual identification 
positive visual identification of your enemy. Now, what good is a missile that I can shoot 50 miles away if, if I have, gotta, to have a positive yeah. visual identification? Now, I might have a TV with a really high magnifying camera, and that, that exists. That, that's called a targeting pod, and we can talk about those. I don't know if I have a picture. I do have a picture. Go, go to the two ship at sunset. Um, we can, no, that's the two ship under Refueling. the tanker. That one. If you look really closely, the, the, the kind of the front end, there's this dark looking appendage. The green down. tube? Yeah, that green tube. That's a targeting pod. And they are amazing. I mean, we, you can take the camera on the front of that targeting pod, and I can zoom in. I can lock on to another airplane 30, 40 miles it's basically away. a telescope on it's a gimbal. It's a telescope, that it, and then it shows up on a little TV screen in my cockpit. And I can zoom in and go, oh, yeah, that's a MiG-29, or, oh, yeah, that's a SU-30, you know, or whatever. And that so, counts as visual identification, right? It can. It yeah. Can. I mean, it, it, you know, it, not in all cases, but it can. That plus other things. There's other ways we identify airplanes. But anyway, my point is, is you may, you may be waiting, 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 to get, it, to get clearance to fire, and you may end up in a visual dogfight mer merge, merges when you meet visually, uh -huh. and go, oh yeah, that's a MiG-29, and now, now I'm clear to shoot him because I've positively identified that as, another, as an enemy airplane. Now I'm in this dogfight. Oh, good grief. So now I have to you know, turn and point, and he's trying to do the same thing, and it can get ugly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you only have to turn 180 degrees, right? And then you can see him? Theoretically, yeah, you turn 180 degrees, but he's turned 180 degrees. So if you met at high aspect and you both turn 180 degrees, now you're going to meet at high aspect again, but you're going to be lower and slower because you're pulling G's this whole time. So you're mm -hmm. bleeding energy. And then there's a question of, do I want to do that turn in afterburner, which gets me around the turn faster, but also makes me much more vulnerable to heat-seeking missile because I got this great big heat source. How fast is... Okay, so like... Go back to that picture. Big heat source, right? Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as you kill your afterburners, how fast does that heat signature go away? Um, it, it goes away pretty fast. And then you add in some flares, right? So you, you carry flares with you. You, mm -hmm. you pop the flare. It's a really bright heat source. Problem is the missiles are so good nowadays. They, first of all, they can detect your engine without the afterburner. Uh -huh. And second of all, they don't bite off on flares. There's flare rejection logic <laughs> that exists. I mean, you know, it's just... We just get yeah, better. Yeah, it's cat and mouse game, it's right? It's cat and mouse. You, Everything, you get better, you get better. They get better, we get better, they get better. So when you started flying the F-16, um, you told me a story earlier about you, you took com command of a squadron. Yeah. Right? Well, I didn't right away. So go to the, right. the yeah. elephant walk, the airplanes on the ramp. You know, see, so I, I started out in a place called Moody Air Force. It's called Bank. an elephant walk? Yeah, it's called an elephant walk. We, you, you, a lot of times, this is at... So I, I flew for three years in Georgia. I was a captain... And then I went to Korea for a year. This is at Kunsan Air Base, Korea. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a very interesting assignment because we were um, we always training. You know, Korean War is not over, right? They, they, they never, yeah, never really <laughs> settled it, right? It, it, seriously, never really settled it. So at Kunsan Air Base, there were, two, there were two squadrons. I was in the Pantons, the 35th Fighter Squadron. There was the 80th Fighter Squadron, the Juvats, Headhunters. We were big rivals. But at the end of the day, we exercised a lot. I mean, a lot, exercise. And then I did that, and then I went back to Luke and flew as an instructor. By, by exercise, what do you mean? Do you mean you I mean, patrolled the DMZ? I, I, or? I mean, we, play, we played war like it was real. I, and I'm talking about we would have 24-hour operations. We would be bunkered down. We would have chemical gear on. We would have helmets, flak vests. When we, would, when we would go fly, we would fly at the DMZ. We wouldn't obviously cross the DMZ, but we would fly missions 
doing predominantly close air support in the DMZ, um, practicing. But when you were practicing, were you, were you carrying live munitions? Uh, generally not. There were some live munition sorties we would go, but we wouldn't go to the DMZ to drop the bombs, obviously, because there wasn't any live. So range. you weren't doing patrol, um, masquerading as no, drills? No, no. This was generally a, these kind of exercises involved flying, but they were also about what we call fighting the base. The base has to be ready to fight. It's kind of like right. being on a ship, right? Right. You, you, the, 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 there's, a, there's a two Air Force bases in Korea, Osan and Kunsan. So you can better believe that if we were to go to war over the DMZ. Yeah, they're, North they're, Korea, they're targets. Yeah, everything is incoming right. into those so two you, bases. So you've got to get off that base. So we, the, the engineers would practice patching runways. You know, we would practice uh, hunkering down during a chemical attack. We would practice dispersing the forces when there was an attack. All this kind of stuff you'd practice constantly. You would have an exercise every month, and hmm. then at the end of your year there, at you know, typically in the late springtime there would be an operational readiness inspection, and the leadership of the wing would all turn over after that inspection. That was like their report card, right? Yeah. So, um, so I did that. So great assignment for its own reasons. You were asking about, so then I, I did a couple of things, went to school. I was an instructor pilot at Luke Air Force Base. You know, um, not terribly scary, but you know, when, when brand new students, first time flying the F-16, are flying and you're in their back seat, you can, that makes for some scary moments. Yeah. <laughs> right? What's yeah. the scariest moment when, when you have a student in there? Uh, the, the scariest, take off landing or what? Uh, that can be, but the F-16 is pretty easy to take off and land. I could pretty much teach anybody to take off and land an F-16 uh, pretty quickly. The scariest moments for me were, were teaching dogfighting, especially the, what we call the high aspect dogfighting. So that's when you, the, when you start out in dogfight training, you would start out in a perch position. So there would be a clear defender in the front and a clear offensive um, plane in the back. Mm -hmm. And the guy or girl in the front would turn, would try to defend by turning their airplane. And so sometimes, I think we started out teaching the, the students defense first. How do you defend yourself if someone rolls in behind you? So you would learn how to jink and, you know, to, to avoid getting shot. Okay, mm -hmm. that was, um, that's not hard. I mean, it, you pulled a lot of Gs and you had to look over your shoulder a lot. But, but beyond that, it wasn't terribly scary. What got scary is you went from defense to offense and then to high aspect. So you would have these, these dogfights that would be intentionally set up through a what we call a neutral pass, a high aspect pass. You would fly within 500 feet of each other at closure, so uh, you know, closing velocity of over 1,000 knots, right? right? One person's going 500, the other's going 500, you're closing at 1,000 knots. You know, in the back of an airplane with a student in front in his first high aspect sortie, and, and the, the canopy's a little curved, and you're going, you know, you're making sure as an instructor that he's not gonna hit that dude. He's gonna get close to him, Within 500 feet, but you don't want to get. And locked. how do you ensure you don't hit each other? You're just well, watching. You, yeah. That Mark One eyeball. <laughs> you're, you're watching with the Mark One eyeball. He generally there's a radar lock involved, but even that, I mean, things happen very, very fast at oh, that yeah. speed. So, you're, so there's some trust involved. You know, like all all instructor pilot activity involves some level of trust. <laughs> and, yeah. And you know. Uh, because if you because if you do every if you control everything as the instructor, then the student is not going to learn anything. You know, yeah. students have to scare themselves a little bit to to learn lessons. Right, but not die. <laughs> but not die. Right. Well, I told you That's the story the about why this thing, how how this thing is here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
this was, I mean, from the reports or whatever. Right. This was this was a it was rendezvous. The same kind of thing, right? But it's even easier, yeah. right? Because this was a rendezvous. So oh, right. they're they're they're, they're no planning to get rate. together. Yeah, yeah, they're planning to get together. They're so closing, they're closing at a real easy rate. Is yeah. whatever rate that they want. You right. know, like you you described. Right. Thousand knots. Right. This has, has but an instructor and yeah. a student bounced off each other. Yeah. <laughs> both, both popped out. out. Yeah, they both jumped and, out. And unfortunately, that happened. That yeah. happens. That happens. You know, it's not unheard of that that happens because. The most dangerous thing, and you do a lot of it in the military, is flying in close formation. You saw that picture, you know, flying in close formation. But um, yeah, which, which one was that? The one. Uh, so they're they're both. Uh, show well, me refueling, that right? One. Yeah, that's close. So that's close. You know, if the if the airplane in the back, who's the wingman, pulls too hard on the stick, he's going to hit the airplane in the front. That's all. That's all it has. You know. Mm -hmm. So you spend a lot of time in pilot training, learning how to fly formation in a safe manner, which is I'm matching speed. I'm matching, you know, aspect, altitude with, with, and those same skills, you use them in dogfighting, but now what you're trying to do is you're trying to match to a position of weapons employment as opposed to just a position of flight. Now, I'm interested, how does the throttle work on the F-16? Like, is it, if you set it, is it, is it going to maintain an airspeed? Is it basically like a cruise control throttle or is it maintaining constant thrust? It, it, it maintains constant thrust. It, it can maintain constant airspeed if you're not doing anything different. If you're flying at the same altitude, the same G-loading, the same, you know, and, and, and nothing changes, essentially you can set throttles and make very small or no changes to them and you'll keep that airspeed. And you generally do that by setting a power setting, like a percentage of your RPM is, is okay. the way I used to do it. Um, but let's talk about being a squadron commander. Yeah. Can you go to the overhead picture of the airfield? You asked me about my, this is Spangdalem Air Base, Germany. It's in western Germany, and it's, it's, uh, it was very green. And I went there after my fighter assignment tour. And what year was this? I went there in 2001. All right. And, um, yeah, we, we arrived there July 4th, I think, 2001. And 9-11 happened. Things got kind of crazy. When I first show up at, at the base, I was the chief of safety of the wing. I flew with the Blue Squadron, the Fighting Hawks, the 23rd Fighter Squadron. And then I became the operations officer for the Fighting Hawks. So I flew pretty much all with the Fighting Hawks. I was in those two jobs back-to-back -back for about a year and a half. So December, um, I was told in the fall of 2002 that I would become a squadron commander. Well, in the fall of 2002, things are starting to get a little heated in Iraq. We had been flying... The United States Air Force never stopped going to war in the Navy, too, over Iraq since the first Gulf War, since 1990, 1991. In fact, I flew Operation Southern Watch sorties in 1991, and then I flew them again in the early 2000s. All that time, we're flying and patrolling the no-fly zones over north and south Iraq, northern and southern Iraq. We weren't generally flying right over Baghdad, but those northern flights. But during the gap, we, like, the... the the Iraqis did reestablish their air force, right? Like Saddam did reestablish. Yeah. It, he owned the air over Baghdad. He owned the we... air right over Baghdad. But there was, you know, to, to, to answer that question, I don't, he established the ability to control the air through the acquisition of surface-to-air missile systems. As far as the, the, the ability of his air force to do much flying, I think it was really limited in that whole period of time because the North 
the northern and southern no-fly zones took up so much of the real estate over the country. And there were a lot of sanctions that prevented him from really establishing an Air Force. So they did, you know, and, and, and so there were periods of time that we flew over Northern Watch, Southern Watch throughout the 90s that there would be a flare-up in the sense of the Iraqis would try to shoot one of our airplanes down with a surface-to-air missile. Yeah. system. And while you're patrolling While we're patrolling that no-fly zone. Yeah, yeah. But, but I don't know that they... I do remember that. Like, Yeah, they, they did launch some airplanes um, early on in the no-fly zone, but they, but they, they were pretty quickly dispatched, and, and so they, they kind of stopped doing that later. So when I went back to fly in that part of the world, you know, a couple of years had passed, I'd done some other assignments. When I got back to Germany, the picture... And then became a squadron commander. Well, I became a squadron commander in December, December 20th, mm-hmm. 20, 2002. About this time, there's all this talk about sanctions, about, about chemical weapons, about, you know, problems with the Iraqis. And I was supposed to deploy with the... By the way, I was, I was flying with the Blue Squadron this whole time. Now I'm the squadron commander of the Red Squadron, the 22nd the big 2-2 or the uh, last of the red high fighter squadrons we, we called ourselves. And the, there was a pretty intense rivalry on the base between blue and red. There were some folks that when I became the squadron commander, they were kind of like, eh, I don't know this guy. You know, he's from the other squadron. We don't really like the other squadron. So there was a little bit of animosity just in, <laughs> in general terms against me being the squadron commander. I knew most of the folks. It was a small base. So I, we exercised with those guys. And, but, but there was a really strong rivalry between yeah. the two squadrons. So I came in there on December 20th. Um, if you go to the, uh, the, the January, there's a picture that says January 16th, 2003. That picture is of, um, are you showing it? Cause I don't, maybe no, that's a map. Yeah, it's a, that perfect. Just show that for a second. Yeah. So this is a pic. So that's an overhead view of Al-Udid Air Base in Qatar. And you can see the right side of the map. The left side is the overhead view of the runway. The right side of the map is the map of the Gulf right after I took command. So 31 December 2002. Uh-huh. And... There's, a, there's now a movement of coalition forces to build up. There was already forces there for Operation Southern Watch, but, the, but a buildup is happening, right? And we're part of the buildup. So from Germany, three weeks, three and a half weeks after I take command of the squadron. Deploy. I, we go deploy. You're taking 12 <laughs> airplanes. You're taking, you know, some, some pilots, and you're going, you're going to a place we can't tell you where you're going initially. I mean, literally, the day of my change of command, the day of my change of command, we're at a reception, we're having a party, I, and the wing commander and the ops group commander pull me aside, and you know they go, we need to talk. And they pull me into an office, and my wife is kind of giving the shrug, like, what's going on? And they're telling me, okay, you're going to deploy in three weeks. You know, We thought you were going to deploy in March, but we're move, things are moving up because of the situation on the ground, right? Yep. So, so we deploy. So we go to, so go, um, yeah, show that picture of the flag and the sign. So this is literally right after I take command of the 22nd Fighter Squadron. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the people decorate the sign, and that, that's me. And hey, so they got your name up there. They got my name up there. Yeah, yeah it was pretty cool. 
And then go to the picture of this like encampment, bunch of tents in like nowhere land. Yeah. So so we go to Aludid Air Base. Cut. So you just took command of your squadron at that nice base in Germany. In this nice base in Hanging Germany. out with your family. Everything's boom. cool. Boom. Tents Three and, and a half weeks later, we're here. And not only that, but the reason they're tents is because there's nothing there. It's just but an airfield. It's it's a concrete everywhere, but there's nothing happening there. There's there's like an occasional transport plane. The, the Qataris are hardly using it. They they built this magnificent base with all this hardened aircraft shelter, all this ramp space, ten thousand something foot runway, and but they're not using it. So we we deploy down there, we land, and we got to build a base from from scratch. They didn't have like barracks or anything. They no. just had runway and shelters. Yeah. They didn't have oh. so we have it. We build a tent city. Show us that Quonset hut picture. Yeah, this is my squadron. We build a squadron out of this Quonset hut. Basically, <laughs> stand it up out of out of nothing. Uh, big the two two on there. <laughs> it tells you the two two expeditionary fighter squadron now. And but we don't turn a wheel. We we land there on the sixteenth. We're not even allowed to fly our first sortie until the twenty seventh, because for eleven days, there's this diplomatic back and forth about. They, they allowed us to come there, but they weren't sure that they, we, they wanted us to conduct con, combat operations out of that base. Mm. So the Qataris in the U.S. are talking, the coalition, all this stuff. Finally, we allowed... Before we just decided to do it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So then we were allowed to fly, but we're not allowed to fly combat missions. We're allowed to train. So we're training over, you know, Qatar, which is like basically a, a peninsula, an island. So what does that mean? You're not allowed to load weapons? Correct. We're, we're allowed to... We, so we're flying training sorties, you know, we're getting everybody recurrent after 11 days of not flying. We're get, learning the landscape. We're, I feel like, like that. What, what that really means, though, yeah. is that we didn't need to be flying yet. Because I feel like if we needed to fly with weapons, we would have just done it. But we didn't quite need to yet, so we were being diplomatic and letting and yeah. saying, sure, we're just going to train for a Oh, I'm day. sure there was. But, and, I mean, if you needed to go, I'm, yeah, probably would have gone. Was that the sense that you got on the on the ground? Like? Well, the weird thing is, is you know, we 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 got bits and pieces, right? We we didn't, we never. Uh, I mean, I'm on a secure phone every day, talking to the folks back in Germany, working with the command post, the 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 headquarters of the CENTAF, the Central Air Forces, you know, operation was at. Prince Sultan Air Base, which is where we thought we were going to go, which was in Saudi Arabia. We ended up going to Qatar because I think they needed to disperse folks because there were going to be lots more forces coming in the country. And they're still trying to, you know, they're, they're building up a, a plan, a war plan. They're trying to figure out diplomatically if we're going to actually go to war or not. There's a Southern Watch operation happening, but they weren't ready to bring us into that rotation because they had enough airplanes to yeah. do that. But... So we start flying training missions the 27th. I think it was the 15th of February where we actually got to fly our first Southern Watch sortie, so over Iraq, you know, a combat sortie, but it's still patrol, right? But it's, um, so I led that first sortie like a squadron commander does. Okay, I'm going to lead from the front, and, you know, so myself and Planet Boyd, uh, another guy, we, we had, you know, we had a gaggle of a couple different types of airplanes, and we fly this patrol and the interesting thing about the geography there is, you know, Qatar's about an hour and a half, an hour from direct flight time from the Iraqi border. And if you're going to fly over Iraq, you want to make sure you have a lot of gas. So you take off, you fly into the Gulf, you find a tanker, you refuel, then you go into Iraq, you do your thing for a two-hour patrol or three-hour patrol, and then you come back, you hit the tanker again, 
don't hit it. That's what we call, you know, right, getting right. fuel from the tanker. You hit the tanker again, and then you come home. So the whole thing's like a four or five hour sortie, which is a fairly lengthy sortie in an S16. Your training sorties are like an hour, hour and a half, maybe, maybe two on a good day. So, um, so we're doing Southern Watch, and Southern Watch gets build it, built up. There was a, there was and a, what was your weapons load out for this? Um, it was harm. Harm all harms, missiles, all harm missiles, and, and like a sense. And the reason it or, was or is because the, you know we, we th that was our mission. So that so go to the the single airplane underneath the where you see the bottom of the airplane for a second. One more time, that single F sixteen picture. That's uh, a beautiful plane. Yeah, that's a good one. You can see from this one. I was I want you to go to the flying one in a second. The single, yeah, that one. So that little that little pod that you saw in the last picture and that you see kind of on the front, just under the inlet of this one, is, a, is called a harm targeting system. It, and what that does is it allows you to precisely target radar sites that are emitting. So you're picking which radar site you want with that one. Correct. And then passing that information off to the missile. Exactly. And then it, it sticks to and that one. And then the missile says, now I have a precision location of the radar site. And then the missile does its thing because the missile has an anti-radiation seeker on it. So it'll, it'll look for radiation and it'll home in at the end game. But this, the, the harm targeting system gets it very close, right? So we're flying with harms and harm targeting system because we are, our mission is force protection. But it gets more interesting. As, as from 15 February until mid-March or so, the, the Southern Watch buildup builds up. If you remember from the first Gulf War, there was SCUD... Um, missiles that we, that we were worried about. Um, I'm looking at the time. I've been now you're fine. I've been talking for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so you, you, your yeah, audience Scuds is were a big one in the first one. Scuds right? were a big one, and we were concerned about Scuds in Western Iraq. So our mission, and we had sort of planned and prepared for this, is to be the force protection for surface-to-air missiles in Western Iraq as part of this Scud hunt because we had a plan. The, the coalition had a plan to find and destroy Scud missiles in Western Iraq, much like we did in the first Gulf War, because the same dynamics, political dynamics existed. If the Iraqis launched Scuds into Israel or to you know, any Western country mm -hmm. west of it, that, that could have you know, upset the balance of the coalition or caused the Israelis to, to come in and, and counter. So we wanted really not that not to happen. So this whole scud hunt thing was relied on a variety of forces. There were forces on the ground. There were special operators that went in using helicopters and, and slow-flying airplanes or on the ground looking. And, and uh, we were sort of the overwatch protection of that because there were a bunch of um, Rolands, which were mobile surface-to-air missile systems, that we were concerned would be out to, to potentially shoot down helicopters or mm -hmm. slow-moving airplanes. So we were part of that force. Right. Being in western Iraq for your, for your mission from Qatar, the geography is it's a long flight, right? Yeah. So now it's two hours to get there. It's one or two refuelings. You go into the what we call the box, you know, into Iraq. In western Iraq, we're patrolling, and we're in there for a couple hours. We might go refuel during that time. And we're sort of really watchfully waiting. We're, we're paying attention to the sensors. We're listening to command and control. We're, we're tied into the folks on the ground. What were your rules of engagement? Like if one of these... Yeah, these, so we could defend Rolands, ourselves. We could do, yeah. But if one of the Rolands popped up, like I'm, I'm assuming that you can tell from your aircraft whether or not this SAM site is yes. hot. You could tell from your aircraft whether the SAM site was hot. So if it's hot, 
You're allowed it's, to shoot it's, it? So it's hot, you're allowed to shoot it. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, not, much da- not much happened. But they were harrowing missions, right? Because we're flying long missions, eight-hour missions, uh-huh. and the weather was crappy. I mean, this was, this was now, we're in early March, you know, there's sandstorms. There's, Not, there's some, no, no Southern California. It's no Southern California. <laughs> and, um, but we were getting a sense from talking to the command post that the war is going to kick off any day. Well, I, so now I put myself on this sort of night schedule because I think things, are, things generally happen in the early morning hours. So we have folks flying now 24-7. We have a two-ship or more of F-16s over. Show us the picture of the two-ship behind the tanker. There's a two-ship or more over southern Iraq um, at all times. Now, here's, this is me and my, my wingman, my paired wingman, Corn Peterson. Corn was his call sign. And uh, he's got an airplane on the right with harms. And, and, and this is a little bit later in the, in the war. I've got uh, a JDAM. I think I have a JDAM and a, and a Wickman, a CB-103, which is a, basically a wind-corrected cluster bomb. It's not just your everyday cluster bomb. It's a special cluster bomb that, that has the ability to sort of correct for, for winds up and down. So, but we, we were, Corn and I were flying at night. Or we would literally wake up at midnight we would brief to fly. We would grab some food. We would get to our jets about 2 in the morning. We'd take off 2, two in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, and we would fly until the sun came up. You know, and then about 8 to 10 in the morning, we would land back, you know, back at So you just basically wanted to be on watch when it went down. I wanted to be, you know, in that time frame when things happened. Yeah. And, and that's what happened, right? So on the 19th of March, um, we, we think that... We were actually full-blown Western Iraq scud hunting starting about the 15th of March. I may have my date off by a day or two, but things are happening. The war has kind of kicked off with folks crossing the border, but, but the big-time air war doesn't start until the 19th. And on the 19th of March, I'm on a patrol, and the first thing I notice is I, you know, things are getting really busy on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a two-ship of... of uh, there were some other F-16s up towards Baghdad, we were avoiding Baghdad because Baghdad was was like Indian country, man. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad juju. All the intelligence said they've got they're going to protect their capital. They've got all these radar missiles. We're ready for them to shoot salvos and salvos of radar guided missiles to us. They don't do it. They shoot some, but it's not like the intelligence tell us. They just basically they shoot a couple of missiles. We shoot back some harms. The harms guide the missiles. You know the missile sites go down. And the Iraqis quickly figure out that the American Air Force, the harm targeting system in the Block 50 F-16 is, is a formidable threat. And if they turn their radar on, they're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of stopped doing that, <laughs> right? But on the 19th of March, it, relatively benign sortie for a good part of it. And as I'm flying towards the tanker, uh, we start getting, my, my wingman and I get shot at. And, you know, when I say get shot at it, we're flying over an encampment you know, we're 20,000 feet, but I can see tracers kind of coming in our general direction. So this is just dumb anti-aircraft, like 20 yeah. millimeter. There's or, no or, radar at all, but they're, yeah. but they're shooting in our general direction. And then looking at Baghdad, you can see things light up. There's more shoot, shooting. And what there. is the altitude range of like th- those anti-aircraft cannons? From what I saw at the time, it was probably, you know, 10, 15,000 feet below me. It really wasn't a threat. I mean, if, if things are moving on your canopy, they're not a threat, right? Where you have to worry is when things are stationary <laughs> because that means you're on a collision course. That's right. how, how you can tell. But I could just sort of, you know, it was, it, first thing I'm like, oh, 
I'm getting shot at. It was like a yeah. fascinating thing. That's <laughs> an interesting concept. We got yeah. the same thing in the Navy at, at sea, right? It's uh, constant bearing, decreasing range. Right, right. It's exactly <laughs> is what, that what you call it. Constant yeah. bearing, decreasing range. Yeah, yeah. And if you have constant bearing, decreasing range with a missile or a or a bullet, that's or the a problem. ship or a buoy. You got or ship or a buoy. You got to change something. Yeah, right? you got to change the attitude or altitude of your airplane. So, right, exactly. So we, you know, the war is now afoot. So did you just get a call on the radio that said, hey, go time, time to blow something up? Go find something? So, or? <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice. Because that would but, be fun to be in the but cockpit. But so now the frustrating, like, part, right, the frustrating part happens is we're, we're loaded with harms for another week. And, you know, from the 19th of March until yeah, about the, about the, the yeah, 20, late March, you know, maybe the 25th, 28th, and I make a decision talking to command and control, I go, this... We, we sh we're shooting some harms around the clock. You know, occasionally something happens. But, and my wingman shoots a couple based on point outs that we get, but never a reactive shot. We, he never shoots a reactive shot because they, they just, when we're up, they're not pointing their radars at us, right? So, so I make a command decision. We're going to go to a mixed load like you see on this. Mm -hmm. on this where, so I'm one of the wingman pair is going to have bombs, the other is going to have harms. And now things get a little more interesting. We're, the, as as the, our intelligence gathers, the, the, here's a surface-to-air missile site. It may or may not be on, but I want you to take it out. They give us coordinates. We go find it. Sometimes the weather's bad, and sometimes I don't see anything. I end up dropping a bomb on the cloud, you know, right. <laughs> based on the best intelligence that we have. But we shoot a harm at it anyway because we can... We can use that coordinate, and in case it comes up, the harm will guide at the end game. And if it, if it doesn't come up, the, the harm will get close, but that won't do all the damage, so I drop a bomb on it just to be sure. So now, why, why would you split up the harms and JDAMs across planes? Why wouldn't you just say, hey, this one's half and half? Why wouldn't I have one harm and one JDAM? Yeah. Is that what you mean? The, yeah, you said, like, my wingman would have bombs and I'd have yeah. arms or whatever. Yeah, the other way around. Uh, why, why wouldn't you just have generally mixed weapons Generally, it's because of, the, because of the... Um, uh, the best way to explain it is, I, I, you know, first of all, I'm not 100% certain that the airplane was cleared to carry a harm, which is a pretty big missile. You saw a picture of it, uh -huh. and a JDAM at the same time. Um, I think later we got that clearance, but mixed load clearances were hard to come by. Uh, JDAMs were new, you know, and so we were, we, we, you know, ha harms we'd had for a while and the harm targeting system we'd had for a while, but JDAMs were new. I mean, they were like, we, we were learning things while we were dropping JDAMs. Hmm. Not, not a lot had been dropped. In fact, we had just started training with them probably a year earlier before we deployed, a year and a half earlier in earnest. Um, so, you know, uh, so, so... So that was the deal. Harm, if the radar didn't come on, the JDAM would finish that. Yeah, and sometimes both. You know, sometimes, we, yeah, harm and JDAM. And so I, we, we employed, a lot of times this was with a... That coalition picture you had up there a second ago, Andy, you know, you, you, I don't think we have a... Uh, um, yeah, you can That's see... Cool shot. That was that a cool shot. So this was sort of a hero shot we took near the end of, of my deployment there. But these were all the airplanes that were at LUD during this. That's not period. everybody just trying to hit that tanker. That's a staged shot. <laughs> it's a totally staged shot. <laughs> but we had, we had Strike Eagles from Seymour Johnson. We had a tanker. We had, obviously, the, the, uh, the 117 there. Um, and the foreground, so the foreground is an F-18 Hornet, but it was actually not a Navy F-18. It was an Australian F-18. Oh, In fact, yeah? my roommate, my tent mate, was uh, Mel Upfeld, was, ended up becoming the chief of the Australian Air Force. But he was, he was a squadron commander of, uh, 
79 squadron, 29 squadron, uh, the Magpies. It was the right designation. But, but yeah, so we had some coalition folks there. We had tornadoes from, from the UK. And uh, the base, the, this little tiny base, this tent city became a big deal, but we still didn't have buildings. You know, we <laughs> left Always tents. Yeah, and so, you know, there's where, a whole, Where did you guys store your munitions? Oh, there there was a munition storage area. There's ah. plenty of desert, you know, <laughs> plenty of... The, you know, the thing, uh, there's a picture of me in front of an airplane with two maintenance guys. You see that one? Let me just talk about them for a second. So this, this particular Block 50 F-16, I, I went out on a sortie, and that, that airplane logged 4,000 hours. It was the first Block 50, I think, to cross 4,000 hours. We were flying long sorties. Yeah. You know, the airplane's designed, we're, we're flying every jet, every day, a couple times a day. We're flying 24-7. We went through 61 straight days of combat operations. And you said you're hitting the tanker at least twice. At least. And many times, there were a couple sorties where I hit the tanker five times. Wow. Um, the, we ended up setting up a, a, a phase dock, a, a major depot overhaul dock. You know, every... F- 100 hours, 200 hours, you had to do a phase inspection, which was kind of a big deal. You're pulling panels off and everything. It's an overhaul, major overhaul. We sent it up. We set up a phase dock where we had two airplanes in a phase dock because we're putting hours on the airplane so fast, you know. Huh. And so guys like uh, like Sergeant Campbell, there, or Airman Campbell, and and uh, uh, Sar- I think it was Sergeant Wilson, who was a production super on this particular sortie. Those were, guys were working pretty hard, those too. Those guys were humping, man. <laughs> I mean, and you know, it's 120 degrees out there. Yeah. I mean, there's not shade or anything, and it was... Uh, so it's a testament to them. Yeah. We ended up with 24 airplanes. We had 91 pilots. We had probably 300 pilots and maintainers and administrative folks from Spangdalem Air Base, Germany, and it was the biggest seed squadron ever, right? Hmm. So, and, uh, you know, I, I dropped some bombs. You know, there's some... <laughs> there, uh, most of the stories were kind of benign. There was a lot of boredom, and there was some sheer terror for about 10 seconds here and there. <laughs> okay, so you had sheer terror for 10 seconds. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, w- one time we're, we're, f- we're going to the tanker, and the tanker wasn't where he was supposed to be, and there were two or three flights trying to find this tanker that wasn't where he was supposed to be, and we're in and out of clouds, and I literally, my wingman and I were flying close, and we get a, you know, I get, we're not, and you're not supposed to lock the tanker up. It gets tankers nervous when you have live weapons, but you lock them up with your radar. You know, they're Because you're looking for them. They get tensed up, right? Yeah, you're looking for them. So you're trying to do this without locking anybody up, and, and there's a break in the clouds. I see the tanker, and then literally about, I don't know, Probably 500 feet, but it might have been two or 300 feet. Another two ship goes to see right below us. I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, had no idea they were there. They were looking for the same tanker we were. Can, command and control didn't tell us about them. You know, yeah. It was it was that kind of stuff. You just kind of like, holy cow, man! I almost got you know. I here I am in combat. I almost hit another airplane, <laughs> just you know, yeah. looking for the tanker in a relatively benign scenario. I'll tell you, I, so. you know, it's interesting you bring that because I've heard a lot of stories here at this club. Yeah. That revolve around pilots looking for the tanker and being like, oh, this is tanker. <laughs> right. Like, there was this one, this guy just had to land in some, I, I can't remember the specifics of the story, but it ended where he had to land at some airfield in Kuwait and there's just like two Marines that are like sitting under a tarp. They're like, hey, what's up? They're like, I'm out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, gas truck's coming tomorrow. <laughs> we diverted guys into Kuwait. We diverted two guys into a special operations airfield in western Iraq because one of them had, a, had an indication, an engine indication that wasn't right. And a single-engine airplane, you know, you, you take this seriously. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember if he had zero oil pressure or something. So they land 
it, it, and, and I don't see these guys for like three weeks because they, we can't get them apart. You know, it's, I mean, it's literally way out in the middle of nowhere. And finally, we, we get the right maintenance guys, the right part. Maybe it was less than three weeks, but it was a while. And, they're, <laughs> and they, they basically, they, they fly like you saw me. I'm just, you know, hunkered down. They've got their stuff. They're, they're, they got a survival get, gear, kit, excuse me. They might have a candy bar in their pocket. They might have a bottle of Gatorade. And that's it. So they're sleeping in a cot, whatever they can find, you yeah. know, in a tent, and just hanging out, waiting. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny growing that that, a beard. That's <laughs> so. the, the the terror results from logistics. Oh, totally. That's a logistics thing, you yeah. know. That's what they say. You know, amateurs talk about tactics, pros talk about logistics. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Yeah. Because if you nail your logistics, you know, the actual act of no matter what you're doing, right, it goes. Smooth. It's like taking care of those airplanes because you're ready. You know, and go everything from you know, diving to mountain climbing to whatever. If you got all your ducks in a row, if you trained properly, right. if you actually do the thing that you went to do, yeah. no problem. Yeah. But where you get terrified is when you get bent out of shape because you're a When you don't have the gas, up. you don't have the food, yeah. Yeah. you don't have the tents. Yep, yeah. yep, you're not you don't prepared. Have the, we talked about having, you know, the, the, the latrines, right? <laughs> I mean, it was just little yeah. things like that. I thought I'm you sure. said there was a lot of desert, right? <laughs> so guys are going desert. everywhere. Hey, show that four-ship picture you had a second ago. I just want to show that. And then we'll talk a little bit about test pilot flying because I know we need to probably... So this is a cool picture. This, this is, this is Spangdalem Air Base, F-16s, Super Squadron. You got two of them loaded with harms, two of them loaded with bombs. And this was our basic fighting unit. You know, and there's, there's blue tails and red tails mixed up in there. So the 23rd and 22nd, all under the banner of the, of the 22nd Expeditionary Fighter Squadron. Um, just, just love the picture from that standpoint, and this is like that is cool. You don't mess with, you know, the F-16 is an old airplane, but I tell you, you felt awfully powerful when you walked out the door and you had a four ship of Vipers loaded for bear like this. Like, yeah, do not f with me because I'm going to bring the heat, man. <laughs> you know, and and it was it was badass. I mean, it was really um, uh, that that's the coolest that's thing cool. about flying about flying fighters. So um, you went from that highly operational flying the F-16. I went to school. You went to school. I went to school. So I go to school. I go to the War College, you know, to, to get educated. Where is to that? Get a, it's in Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, the okay. Air War College. I'm in a seminar. We're learning about geopolitics. I get a master's degree in strategic studies. But the cool thing about, there are a lot of cool things about going to war. It was a relaxing assignment. Um, my youngest son, who's 16, will be uh, on Sunday. He'll be 16. Was born the first month we were there in Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. So, and I'm I play a lot of guitar, and I'm you know, and I'm just kind of chilling and going to school and studying. But one of the cool things I do at school is regional studies. All the U.S. students, so there's an international component, mm-hmm. take a seminar where they study a region of the world. And I I was in the best seminar ever, which was East Asia, basically China and Hong Kong. And so we're studying. We have a Chinese, no kidding. Chinese guy who's our professor. And then in the latter part of the year, we go on a two-week trip to China and to Hong Kong. So take up, there's a picture of me with a Chinese guy showing up, giving, yeah, so here's a, so I'm in China with, you know, I think it was a seminar of probably of 12 officers. This is me and and, and we go to Chinese Air Force bases. They put us on a 737. They take us, good care of us, wine us and dine us. The scary part is everywhere we go, we have a ceremonial dinner. And it had a huge table with probably 50 people sitting around it. 
And ceremonial dinners mean you have to do ceremonial toasts. And you have to have maotai, which is basically fire water, you know, yeah. Chinese, very, very strong liquor. And you have to take a toast, a drink with everybody at the table, you know, gambe, and you're drinking and you're taking a shot. But we, we go to a couple of Air Force bases and you really get an inside look. And there's a picture of me next to a, 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 a J-8, which was kind of a F-16 equivalent. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of the Cold War. And this is, this is the People's Republic. And I'm right there. And they were very welcoming, very very interesting people. We, we train to fight them, you know. Everything's okay. Let's but, not go to war here. But everything's cool. And, and you know, I, I was fascinated, fascinated by the culture. The people were extremely cool. The, the, we, we end up in Hong Kong. It's our last, you know, and, and what I'm watching today in Hong Kong is just really unfortunate because I, we really got a sense for the difference going from, from, from mainland China to Hong Kong and, and being there and, and conversing with the, with the authorities there on how different the culture, uh, the, the political situation was at the time. But, but that was a great... for a while it seemed like they were just going to leave Hong Kong alone. Yeah. That was the idea, right? It was totally the idea Let's until 2047. Let's just leave it alone. And, That's the plan. And 97, it can do its own thing. 50 years of its own autonomy. But, you know, we don't talk about politics on this, on this show, but... Uh, I don't know if we could talk... I think we can yeah. talk about other places' politics. Yeah. As a study, you know, yeah. a, a cultural study. One of the places I really, really wanted to take my wife that, I ha- that I've been a chance to go and she, was, was Hong Kong and my kids, too. We, we haven't gone. I, now it's going to be interesting to see if we can go. You know, I just yeah. think... I, I think it's really concerning uh, what's happening over there as far as democracy. So do you think, do you think the sleeping giant analogy is... is Accurate. Uh, what, for China. What's the sleeping giant analogy? Don't awaken him. I mean, I from from what I've heard and what yeah. I've seen, this is just my opinion. I don't think they're ready for a war. But if they ever did get ready for a war, it would not be good I, you for know, anybody. Yeah. Gosh. W- the interesting thing about studying China, we're so intertwined economically with them. Right. I mean, a war would be just disastrous. Right. Disastrous mm-hmm. for them, for us. They, militarily, they're getting more ready. And yeah. that's the thing I've studied. And when you and, and then my next assignment after I went to school, I went to the test organization and, and was the operational test pilot for a couple of years there. And we and we we trained against the very highest end leading edge of Chinese and Russian hardware. Right. We were we didn't train against the actual hardware, but we trained tactics. We built tactics against that capability. So our intelligence would figure out basically where they were at technologically. Right. Yeah. Show that picture again of, yeah. the, of me with a helmet on in the green, right? Um, yeah, or either one. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is at Nellis Air Force Base. So I go to school. I go to... And Nellis is what state again? I'm sorry, Nevada. Nevada, Las, yeah. It's right north of Las Vegas. That's right. Nellis is the home of the fighter pilot for the Air Force. It is where the United States Air Force Weapons School is. Um, you know, you heard of Top Gun. Weapons School is, is like Top Gun on steroids. Um, it is where Red Flag is, which is where... The Operation Red Flag is where every pilot goes to, sh- to hone their skills, Air Force pilot and, and the Navy and other coalition, to hone their skills. So we do training, we do um, tactics development, and, in, and, and then the 53rd Wing, and specifically the 53rd Testament and Evaluation Group, I was the deputy commander for fighters of that organization for a couple years. So yeah, exp- let's yeah. back up. Explain to me exactly what it means to be a test pilot. Because when I think test pilot, I think like 
Chuck Yeager or that guy in the flying saucer, you know? Yeah, right. That's like trying to get this thing yeah. to fly. Or like astronauts where they're like, well, I don't know if we can go this fast. Let's see what happens, you know? And that, that's a test pilot. Yeah, so but, there's developmental test and there's an operational test. So what I just described, what kind of test pilot is that? That's probably more developmental test. When uh -huh. you go to test pilot school, you learn a developmental test, which is essentially, it's, it, uh, and the lines are blurrier now. You know, if you ever watch the right stuff, and you know, in the 50s and 60s, we were testing a brand new airplane. Yeah, they're trying to figure scratch. out if it can fly. If, if it can fly. And people died because the airplane didn't fly. The engineers didn't figure out that, hey, this right. won't work, right, in this airplane. Things are significantly safer now. But developmental test really ascertains whether a t an airplane meets the basic flying qualities and specifications that it was purchased for. And there's some weapons testing, but the weapons testing is generally associated with um, will the airplane carry the weapon safely and will the weapon separate from the airplane safely and will the, the essential targeting information be passed to the, air, to the weapon but correctly. But it sounds like it's more of a validation thing these days, right? Absolutely. Because when I think test pilot, I think a lot of people do, you know, they're, they're like, well, they say it'll go Mach 1.2. Let's now see. we're going to see if it does. But now they're saying, yeah, it goes 1.2. Yeah. And you're getting in the cockpit to just make, like, check, yes, it does. We well, sure. It. Simulation yeah. and modeling has yeah. gotten so good. The, the, the computers will tell you, the models will tell you that the airplane should do this speed. And, yes, you are going to verify that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go through the whole envelope. And it doesn't mean that, that, that that's not dangerous. It, it, it is. Mm -hmm. but, it's, but that's developmental test flying. Operational test flying, which I did at Nellis, is is basically taking that developmental test product and then determining whether it is suitable and, and uh, uh, there's the other word, it's uh, capable and suitable, capable may not be the right word, for combat operations. And it also involves taking those capabilities and developing tactics to use those capabilities in a, in a, in a fine manner, right, in an in a effective combat. So like effect. figuring out how to fight the aircraft. Exactly. Figuring out how to fight the aircraft. Here it is. This is what it can do. Now right. let's figure out how to fight it. So the F-16 has been around a long time. Um, there's not much developmental test flying that happens with F-16s as the airframe goes. But what does happen is you get a new software load, right? And we go through a developmental test to ensure that that software load doesn't in induce any weird flight control Because it is fly-by-wire. Because it is fly-by-wire. And assuming that happens, then we take that software load in the operational test community and ensure, and, and, and then say, okay, does it do all the things with respect to combat employment that it's supposed to do? And, and some of that involves regression testing, which means it, we knew it could do this before. Let's make sure it still can do that. Mm. And then some of it involves development of new tactics i.e. in verifying that the new capabilities that are supposed to be in that software load are actually there, and then developing the tactics to use those new capabilities. Interesting. So, it's a lot of gobbledygook, I know. I mean, <laughs> but, it's important, though. I mean, you know... So what do we do? Famously, while... the big guys had a problem with this, with that 737 MAX, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a great example, right? Because you had that gone through the developmental test regime that, it went, that, that maybe the Air Force would have put it through... Uh, Someone probably, would have been like, somebody would have what's gone, this? Yeah, in a weird yeah. attitude, you know, yeah. there's this weird situation that happens. Now, I showed those as distinctions, developmental, operational, but the lines are kind of blurry. We, we, in the operational test community, got involved in developmental testing early on, and that allowed us to help shape that testing to ensure that it made sense. And the developmental test community did a little bit of, you know, 
preliminary operational testing. So it wasn't yeah. such a fine line, brick wall. There was a lot of collaboration between those communities. Developmental testing, though, that's kind of like what you do before you sign the check. I mean, I know that's not technically how yeah. it works. We probably sign the check anyway. Yeah. But that yeah, the thought a, process is, is like, you know, right. we're, we're making sure that you delivered what we're paying you for. Right. Yeah. Cool things that I did when I was in the, in the operational test community, you know, targeting pods. Let's just talk about that for a second. You're asking me about close air support. Yeah. So these, these fancy targeting pods, go to the two ship at, at sunset. So we tested the, if you look at that, that green thing in the middle, uh-huh. Right, that's kind of hanging off the nose. The sniper um, advanced targeting pod and the, and the uh, lightning advanced targeting pod. And both of these had amazing capabilities. Now, now they can video data link. Um, we, we use these, when, when I flew in combat and I was dropping JDAMs, I had to get someone else to give me coordinates so that I could load those coordinates in the JDAM so that the JDAM can find the target. And when you say that, you mean you had to type that, that GPS number in? Yes, exactly. To, to the thousandth, right? The latitude and longitude to the thousandth. And the thousandth, how, how close does that get you with a thousandth, a thousandth latitude? Six feet. <laughs> six feet? Yeah, so that's yeah. enough. Yeah, six feet. It's, good. it's pretty good. Um, but that's, that's somebody's three. Gonna check, so somebody that's in the audience digits. is going to check my math. That's <laughs> five digits. That's yeah. five digits. I'm sticking with six, six feet, though. <laughs> but that's five digits for latitude and yeah. six digits for longitude, right? I think the digits were the same. It was, it was, it was two. It was, it was degrees, two. minutes, and thousandths of minutes. So minutes point xxx. Oh, really? Yeah. We didn't. We didn't do seconds. We did it in minutes to the south thousandth. Well, I think easier I, for me to say. Yeah. I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. The way minutes it, to the thousandth. So it'd yeah. be like thirty-eight point point xxx. Xxx. Point, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but you'd have to finger that. <laughs> You'd have to well, type not only that you, in. So, so you're right. You had to finger that in. But not only do you have to finger Actually, you, there was a way, if you walked out the door with the target in your digital transfer cartridge, uh -huh. it, you could just type it in on your the ground. Your thumb drive? Yeah, your thumb drive. <laughs> right, ginormous thumb drive. Plug it in, and it goes to the bomb. But, that, but that's half the problem. But the other half of the problem is that I relied on an off-board source. Right, an offboard source. Think about that. So, so yeah, someone's got to say, "Hey, hit somebody this GPS else has target. to say, here's your target." You know. So before you had that Viper pod, one, you one. couldn't just point to a spot on the ground and be like, "I want to hit that." And that well, can. you ask that question. There was, a, there is a way to drop a JDAM visually, and I dropped a yeah, J maybe for a, um, a, a OV10 guy, right? For an F16 to drop a JDAM visually, what, what you had to do is you, you had to point to a spot on the ground using your symbology, slew a box on the ground against the target, and then drop the JDAM so that it would fly at the time. This probably has changed, but it would have less than 22 seconds of flight. Because if it had 22 seconds or more of flight, that's when it would usually acquire the GPS signal, and that could introduce an error to the bomb based on, you know, uh, from where you intended to aim it. Mm -hmm. What you're essentially doing is you're dropping the JDAM, you're sending it coordinates based on where your symbology is on the ground, and then you're dropping it, and it's gonna go to those coordinates, and it won't try to refine those coordinates unless it gets a GPS signal, and then it will try to refine it, right? So, so I actually did that while I was in combat. 
I dropped on, on a, basically on an enemy position visually. And that was the most, of, of all my combat sorties, that was probably the most satisfying sortie because I actually dropped two bombs. I dropped a, a, a wind-corrected munition dispenser of, of cluster bombs mm -hmm. on the same target to do close air support for some, some army uh, coalition troops. Uh, I say it was satisfying because, you know, this is the only, really the only time I saw the, air, the bomb blow up and, you know, enemy scatter as a result of that bomb blow yeah. up. And, but the rest of my, you know, bomb dropping was generally on target coordinates. So fast forward, I'm in test, right? And now with this fancy targeting pod, I could, the targeting pod was so good that I could generate coordinates using the targeting pod. I could put the targeting pod on a tank, let's say, or a building. Right. And it would, using the GPS in my airplane, and the accuracy of the laser and the pod itself and the camera and the zoom capability of the camera generate my own coordinates. And I would take those coordinates, put them in the bomb, and now I could drop a bomb. I could sell Question. Designate. Did you still have to type them in? <laughs> Did I still have to type them in? No, I think it was, I think digitally we transferred the data. That's nice. Uh, but, but, because I know there's stuff like that all over the military, where it's like, wait, oh, yeah. how come this system just, did, it's right here. Yeah. It's right here. Yeah, wait, talk to you, each no, other. No, 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 you you got to read off that screen, and right. you got to type it in it over here. should be fairly straightforward, right? Yeah. So, um, so that was one of the cool things. Now, that's mundane work. In order to, uh, for us to certify a brand-new lieutenant who's right out of pilot training to do that, we need to make sure in a variety of conditions that when I generate coordinates using this new targeting pod software or new targeting pod, that those coordinates are accurate enough to put in a JDAM and the JDAM goes where it needs to. So we did an awful lot of flying over targets, generating coordinates, you know, and having stacks and stacks of coordinates and then going back and analyzing our, our engineer analysts would, would verify that against the truth data and go, yes, you were close enough. You were within six feet. Okay, good. Right. And over and over and over again. Okay, this so now, tactic Did, did works. you help develop those test protocols too? Yeah. Like in terms of like, this is a scenario. Oh, we're missing a scenario. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Because I'm sure like the engineers give you some sort of package. Before we like, did a test, we had to develop the protocols. Yeah. And then we had test clearances. We had re test, test readiness reviews. We had, you know, I mean, every... The airplane never flies unless the paperwork is as heavy as the airplane. <laughs> That's sort of the rule of thumb, right? I wonder, how accurate is that? I know that's a, uh, what would you call that? That's a, um, some sort of, uh, yeah. Uh, not an analogy, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> Fable, I don't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> I can't remember How true is it? It's, like, it's probably... if you actually added up the, I mean, okay, so now, okay, <laughs> now things are digital. Yeah. However, I know that the military likes paper, to print man. stuff. We print stuff. <laughs> we print stuff. I wonder how close it is. Yeah. The aircraft doesn't fly unless, unless the paperwork's paper. as heavy. That was a joke we used to. We used it to might say. not be a joke. But it may be true. <laughs> it might not be. The other cool thing. So I'll just one more, maybe one more cool story. Yeah, and I was, we're going to do some questions after this too, because I'm sure oh, we, we are. Got some oh my viewers. gosh, gosh. So, we'll so just we're, do a we're short, pushing. Short, yeah, let me just oh, wrap. We're, we're yeah, pushing two we're hours. <laughs> Are we? Are okay. 7:45, right? Is that when we started? Yeah, it's good. It's 9:45. Interesting my, conversation. I think my wife is gone. Up. Yeah, this time. <laughs> I've heard this story before. She was going to watch, but she's so this goes up as podcast too, so you can listen to yourself on a podcast. Just what I want to do. Yeah, I usually know, listen. To, I listen to a lot of podcasts. How long's your to, commute? Um, well, right now it's pretty. It's it's ten. I'm sorry. It's 30, ten minutes. Thirty minutes. Okay. Thirty minutes. So yeah. So you can get through this in a week. I could get past in a week, but I listen to one and a half speed, so. Yeah. But I'm not going to listen to myself. <laughs> I, in fact, it'll be, well, anyway, I digress. Um, let's, let's uh, so Raptor, right, 
We talked about the F-22 Raptor. It's, it's a bad airplane, yeah. right? Best. So you got to fly that best, too? I didn't. I didn't get to fly the Raptor. The Raptor's single seat, and we had limited training opportunities. Yeah. But when I was at the 53rd TAG, as the deputy commander for fighters, I oversaw Raptor testing mm -hmm. that included the initial operational capability testing, right? So initial operational test evaluation. And one of the cool things I did was fly with Raptors a lot in my F-16. And we did, um, you know, the Air Force bought 187 of them. They were supposed to buy, you know, 400, I think. Three something, three big number, three some big number, 387, I think. Anyway, when it became obvious that we weren't gonna buy that many, it became more obvious that in order for the, us, the Air Force, the coalition, to get the best, best, best out of a Raptor, we needed to develop tactics where one or two F-22s would fly with four legacy fighters. That's what they call old airplanes. Yeah. The F-16s, F-15Es, Strike Eagles, or F-15Cs, uh -huh. the, the light gray eagles. And so I flew a lot of those tactics development missions. And, you, and I flew against Raptors a lot, too. I mean, and that's really... You know, you think, I showed you that picture of the four ship, right? Yeah. And I go, I'm, I'm bad, right? I fly, yeah. I'm flying in a four ship. You got a Raptor in there too. Dude, well, it depends. If I'm acting as an adversary against a Raptor, I never see the Raptor and I die. That's how it works. I mean, and, and it's, it, it, it's, it's eye-watering in a, in a beyond visual range situation. That's how it worked. I would, we would go out against the Raptors never see them on our radar, and we die. <laughs> you know, simulated, <laughs> right? right. We don't actually die, but, but they would go against eight. There would be two of them against eight, 16, you know, 24, four of them against 24. They'd kill everybody, they would never die. We would never crazy. see them. Crazy. Yeah, because they, they literally, you know, they're not invisible, but they're really, really hard to see on radar. They weren't right. as, you know, I couldn't see them on an S-16 radar. So that was an eye-opener. But then, then to, to the point about the integrated tactics, it would be a four F-16s. I would be leading a four ship of F-16. I would have a two ship of F-22s with me. And they would start out, they would shoot all their missiles because they could, and then they would use our missiles. And they would just tell us. You know, they would see things well before we would. And they would direct the fight. They would be the traffic cops back there. Yeah. But they're awesome radar. And they would say, hey, here's, you know, target this group, target this group, target this group, and then we would go do it. And we would just wail. And it was so cool because the, the, we would, in these test scenarios, the adversaries would put up 24. Now, it would generally be 8 or, or 16 airplanes, but they would recycle. Every time they would get killed, they would tag up to a regeneration point, come back out mm -hmm. into the airspace, regenerate. So you would go through a scenario of a vulnerability period of, let's say, a half an hour, and you might face... 24, 36 adversaries, and we kill them all. Huh. <laughs> you know, kill them all. You'd run out of missiles yeah. before you ran out of targets. That's crazy. But the capability was just amazing. And then, and then I had the eye-watering experience of, of dogfighting a raptor against a guy who was a lieutenant in my squadron when I was in Germany. <laughs> he was now a, a raptor pilot. He was a captain. Great guy. Goat. Uh, Goat Allen. And he, you know, he's like, yeah, boss, we're going to go, we're going to go fly. You know, he, he, he called me boss because I was a colonel. He was a captain. And we went out and did dissimilar basic fighter maneuvers, dissimilar dogfighting tactics. I would be behind the Raptor. I'm like, all right, man, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. As soon as the fight's on, you know, with its vectored thrust, it would, be, it would go from here to like there. And I'd be like, 
oh my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm getting a face full of Raptor. I can't get a shot off in time. You know, passes me. I'm turning like a banshee, and next thing you know, he's behind me, and I'm dead. You know, that's crazy. Jeez, like, <laughs> you know, and so. As cool and as that. Why we only buy, buy 140 of these things? 187. 187. Because, uh, you know, they were expensive. We were. How much rough. were they a pop? Um, the, they started out. Uh, yeah, they always start they out. All, <laughs> no, here's the thing. They do. They start out really expensive. I, I don't remember. I, I, I'm going to get my numbers wrong. But, you know, the, 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 probably the initial one, the very the first one off the line was probably, you know, 200 million. Uh -huh. And the last one off the line was probably 100 million. The cheapest ones are the last ones you buy. Because right. when you're amortizing that development cost over a number of different airplanes, the, the more you buy, the cheaper they get. Sure. And, and the other thing that happens is you come down what's called a learning curve when you build them. The first ones to build are the hardest. Yeah. The, the more and this you is all build, on cost plus, right? Yeah, I don't know the contracting mechanism. The, the development is typically cost plus, but then we go to firm fixed price when we start building in, in rate. Yeah. But the bottom line was, um, the Secretary Gates at the time made a decision. I, you know, the Air Force, the Air Force was part of that decision. They didn't want to stop buying Raptors. I think there was some belief that we could keep past that number, but we didn't. So, but I mean, you know, like for the the general rule of thumb is a Tomahawk missile is a million bucks. Yeah. Right. So it's a hundred Tomahawks. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, but I mean, it's a platform and it's not a missile. Peace. Yeah, yeah. and and you know, it's it's. Go see a Raptor at an air show. Pretty, pretty water legit. Your, I mean, water your eyes. Water yeah. your eyes. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm glad America, man. <laughs> you know, yeah, America. <laughs> I'm like, glad we have those. Yeah, glad we have those. Now, anyway. uh, and, and then we got this guy. And then we got this guy. The F-35 is 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 an awesome airplane in its own right. It's better than a Raptor in a lot of ways. It's not as good in other ways. It was optimized in design for for air to ground attack right. more than air to air combat but it's a great air to air combat airplane and, you know and it, it carries missiles eternally hard, very hard to see on radar mm -hmm. it's great great airplane too so and let's take some questions from the from the chat take some I questions think we got a couple oh we my gosh a lot of man questions. you questions. see how many fingers you, guys you just got stick all in the, we have eight I, questions do we have eight questions okay so are you going to read let's them? Let's do the good ones Andy let's encourage people no no he's just going to read them off okay for sure and then and then we're going to all right well first of all Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us tonight. Yes, you thank you. Lovely to see all your smiling faces in the chat. First question comes from the very start of the stream from Serious Improv, and uh, they want to know Top Gun and the right stuff. How much do they get right, and how much do they get wrong? Um, the, both formative movies, if you haven't read the book, Right Stuff, highly, highly encourage people to read it. The, so the Right Stuff came out when I was in... Uh, high school, college, I want to say, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Read the book, loved the movie. Um, what they got right, and then Top Gun came out while I was in pilot training. Um, so I wasn't an operational fighter pilot for either, and I wasn't a test pilot for, for either, right? When they came out. When they came out. What they got right is, is the swagger, the sense of being invincible, the 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 ego you know yeah the you know what they got wrong I, you know it's been a while since I watched the right stuff um, the, but but really the aura of of in a couple things the 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 aura of invincibility that you have the belief that bad stuff might happen to pilots but it ain't gonna happen to me 
you know, because I'm good. I'm better than that. You know, I'm not going to screw that up. You know, that, that whole, you, you know, the hatch just blew, you know, <laughs> you know, this whole conversation in Top Gun about, I'm sorry, in, in the right stuff about what if the machine breaks, you know, well, the machine doesn't break. And if the machine does break, I'm better than a machine. And I'm going to fix the machine, you know, and I'll bring it home safely. Yeah. And so that, that is absolutely sp- spot on. Right. And, and sort of the daring do that this, the scene on the, on the carrier when they find Alan Shepard, the two guys are throwing up and, and they go, you know, you want to do this? And he goes, I don't know, is it dangerous? And he goes, very. And he goes, I'm in. You know? <laughs> and so that, that is absolutely spot on. And, and the same with the ego in Top Gun. What they got wrong in Top Gun, they did for Hollywood purposes. You know, flying around in a dogfight without your mask on, yeah. it's completely bogus. The con- the, 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 you want to get airplanes in the same frame, right, when you got a movie. Yeah. So there's all this very close-in fighting. Real dogfights happen even visual range dogfights, you're a couple miles apart. You yeah. Know? And the other airplane is a spec. But for Hollywood, you got to get close. But for Hollywood, you got to be really close, right? <laughs> well, it's good to know so, that they got the attitude down, even though... They totally got the attitude down. You know, what, and, and, you know what the most accurate submarine movie ever made is? Uh, das Boot. No. No. <laughs> I mean, it's a high on the list, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you ask a submariner yeah. what the best submarine movie is... Red, Hot, Red October? No. no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you tell me. I'm just I'm fishing. This is down Periscope. Really? Yeah, because they got the attitude right. They got the attitude because right. Because if you're on a boat, yeah. <laughs> people are going to mess with you. Yeah. And that's, and that's it. They're like, yeah, you know, all that. Because, uh, again, the stuff with the Hut Wreck, Rod October, yeah. or uh, Crimson Tide or yeah. whatever, yeah. where they're going through the canyon or whatever. Yeah. It's like, eh, yeah. none of that. They do, do it all for Hollywood. Yeah. So it's all about the attitude, right? <laughs> well, and that's the other thing about Top Gun is, you know, the, the, the singing, the camaraderie at the bar, the playing piano, you know, that all of that um, is, is, was spot on. I mean, because that's yeah. really, you know, that's the, that was the funnest, that wasn't the fun. There's a lot of fun parts about being a fighter pilot, but that's definitely up there, you know. Oh, Singing yeah. songs, uh, remembering the heritage, you know, and, and, and paying tribute to the heritage uh, is, is amazing. So anyway, next question. Next maybe. question, yeah. yeah. What is your call sign, and how did you get it? <laughs> My call sign is Moose and uh, NSFW, and uh, it was a it was a, it's a it's not a great story, but it's not a story I'm going to tell here. So not but safe for work, huh? Not safe for work, but but I'll tell you, um, the, the, you know, I'm I'm not really a, a, a big guy. A lot of guys named Moose are like six five and three hundred pounds. Yeah, but, that's why it's not I, safe for work. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But I will tell you, I, I was accused accused or it, it rang true for a lot of folks because I tend to I was told a bull moose in the China shop often and I get riled up about things and so yeah. that that was it, it kind of stuck after the story that's not safe for work. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. All right, what else we got, Andy? Next question is from Larry Stern, and Larry wants to know, what is the average time for a mid-air refuel? That's interesting. Well, you mean how long it takes? I'm, I'm assuming he... Yeah, means? like probably once you hook up, right? Because, yeah. you know, you got some yeah. jockeying around, waiting. Yeah, so you might know, Larry might know, that there's two types of refueling operations in the air. There's the boom refueling, and there's the probe and drogue refueling. Um, uh, we could the boom refueling is the, the Navy uses probe and drogue, and, and some Air Force helicopters do. Mm-hmm. But but the boom refueling was was chosen as the refueling method of choice by the Air Force because of flow rate. 
it was a high, you could get a much higher flow rate with a boom. Um, I, I, so I've never refueled with a probe and drogue. I can't give you any data on that time. But I could put a four ship across in about 20 minutes, and that's topping off. So, so, so when you say four ship, that's, that's, that's a, four a flight of four airplanes. Flight of four airplanes. And you can hit that tanker that yeah. whole flight. The presumption here is I've, I've taken about, I've taken about, um, you know, what did an F-16 carry? About 11,000 pounds of gas when you start up. You're probably down to, oh, nine or 8,000. After you've taken off in afterburner with a full load of bombs and everything, I get to a tanker, it's probably a 20, 30 minute flight to get there. So I'm putting probably 4,000 pounds across each airplane, mm -hmm. and I could probably do that in 20 minutes. And, and we would do what's called quick flow refueling. So you would, and, and calm out, you know, you don't want to communicate if you can, right? So uh, the, the first airplane would come down, it would be on the boom, and while it was on the boom, the second airplane would be right next to it. As soon as the, the first airplane was full of gas, you would click off, you would disconnect by using a button on your stick and move away, and the next airplane would f slide right in there. And you had to be, you know, a good pilot to do this because you had to stay perfectly still while the boom operator stuck you, so to speak. The flow started, and then the next airplane would come down. And yeah, so that's a great question because one of the biggest planning factors is the the, the the amount of booms available and how long it takes to get everybody across those booms. Hmm. <laughs> so you, if you didn't pay, it's logistics, fast, though. it's logistics. Yeah. yeah, but that's a four ship. And that doesn't, that, that's actually on the wing, right? If you messed around and you took a long time to find the tanker, you throw the whole thing off. Right. right? And a lot of times you would get to a tanker and there'd be a four ship on one wing. There'd be another four ship on another wing. And why do you wing. want to do this without radio? Because you don't want every radio emission, every radar emission gives away your position, gives away the force strength. You know, it's it's all this. It's it's operational security reasons. Huh? Yeah. So quite quite. You know, better. it's interesting that I've learned this tonight. It doesn't seem like we've had we have our like uh, radio game as secure as I thought it would be. It's good. You know, it's like secure. I, I understand the concept. I mean, it but gave you not some as, anecdotes. Yeah, not <laughs> yeah. as not as not as encrypted as I thought. Uh, and, and not as untraceable and unjammable as I thought it would be. Well, remember, my stories are 20 years ago, right? So yeah. things are probably... But better. I would think, you know, if there's four... It, would you call it a four? A four ship. Four ship? Yeah. If there's a four ship and everybody's chattering on the radio, radio I wouldn't think that that would give away how many planes. I, I would imagine it would give away that there is a plane... But, yeah. you know, if there's four of them, like, I would imagine that their signals would all look the same. So let's talk about culture for away. just a second. It goes back to the other thing. What, one of the things that, that you strive to do as a fighter pilot is to train yourself not to use words, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Brevity communications is, and, and, and people that are around fighter pilots will go, well, that's BS because fighter pilots talk a lot when they're at the bar. Or <laughs> but, but on the radio, you, you really would strive to be extremely disciplined, regardless of whether you had these encryption devices enabled or not enabled, whether you could be heard or not heard, whether if you got heard it mattered or didn't matter, because it was just sort of a cultural thing. Interesting. To, to not talk, not yak on the radio. In fact, you were admonished. Everybody knows what everybody's doing, and everybody just does it. Yep. That's the, that's Visual the signals. Use to the max extent possible. Use visual signals. Use standards so you don't have to tell people we're doing this standard because they know what the standards are. Right. Yeah. So that's a cultural thing inbred because in the possibility that your encryption devices don't work, 
or that people can hear you, now you're trained not to use them. Right. You know, it's like a day without communications. And we're doing that a day without GPS. We, 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 we're getting to the point where GPS we're super reliant upon. We're super, super reliant upon data link yeah. right now. Data link is amazing. Um, Heard the but, GPS constellation isn't doing so well. Yeah, I've read recent reports about that. But, but I tell you what, if you think about, just think about doing a, a day without GPS. Think about navigating in the city in your car. Yeah, yeah, GPS. Well, you right know. now I go uh, two places a week, and that's here <laughs> in the grocery store. You probably so. have it memorized. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. pretty good. Yeah, but no, normally, you know, that's that. Pick up the phone. Right. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Next question. question. Yeah. <laughs> next question is: What were were there any sort of shenanigans or pranks between squadrons on base? Did you ever mess with each other? Oh, oh yeah. And uh, what were some of them? Oh yeah! yeah. <laughs> now you're going to ask me where were some of them? Um, boy, yeah, the uh, red, red tail, blue tail. Yeah, thing going on, right? yeah, some of that. I mean, y y so gosh, um, you know, some of this is NSFW, not safe for work. Um, some got a, some of it got a little ugly. You know, the the, the, the rivalry thing. Generally, what you tried to do in a healthy rivalry is you tried to show up stronger. So it was generally like we're we have more people at the club at the bar. We're singing louder than you guys. You know we yeah. we, we we the competition was in bombing competitions or whatever. You know we would we would do that. I'm trying to think about outright pranks that we did. You know the best one I've ever seen. I wasn't responsible for yeah. this, but some guys from some some guys and girls from my class, uh, they surfaced a submarine at the Air Force Academy. You can probably <laughs> pull that picture up, Andy. It's famous, but. Uh, you, know, you know, the academy has a big green lawn out in front of the chapel. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty iconic chapel, yeah. right? Yeah. And they built a, a submarine <laughs> <laughs> for, for uh, Navy Air Force Week. Yeah. And great prank. Yeah. Great prank. <laughs> nobody, nobody could argue with that. No. People are always pissed off at a prank, but, you know, <laughs> you're right. Those are, show up. Be louder. Yeah, you know, keep it. The kind of things that we did, and this was probably most prevalent in my assignment in Korea because there were lots of shenanigans that happened there. It was just, yeah, you know, you're you're generally on a remote assignment. It's it's hard work. Ah, there it is. It was a uh... beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen that picture. That's a prank. That's a good. Prank. I'm not responsible for that, but I can say some some people from my class. You, were. you knew some people that knew some people. Yeah, I knew some people that. that knew some people. I was uh, that's a, that's a good lighthearted prank. There. That is a good one. We we would um, move cars a lot. And I mean, like, to take the squadron commander's car and, and pick it up, like six or eight burly dudes, and, just, <laughs> and put it, like, in an, in an office. Or yeah, hit, yeah, yeah, you yeah. get it through two, or just move it, like, lift it up and put it. I don't think we ever got one on a roof, but, but we did that a few times. Yeah. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of bonfire activity that, that ended up being prankish. Um, we did some, uh, you know, you go... Trying to think, this isn't really a prank. When we would we would go to to Nellis to the bar, we would, everybody would take we would have you know goofy name tags, right? Yeah. Or everybody would have a Moose Reed name tag. If this I'm the squadron commander, uh -huh. I gave all my squadron Moose Reed name tags because that way, if they got in trouble for doing something stupid, you know, they would go the cops or whoever would call them and say, "Who are you, uh, Moose Reed?" And you know, they, everybody was Moose Reed, so then they would come to me and then I would <laughs> I would handle it. Um, when I was an OV10 fac, we had some just some kind of I remember that prank, replacing someone's yeah. name tag. 
But we you, had you never of, look at the name tag on your uniform, right? You just, right. It comes out of the closet. Right. We had name tags that were, you know, that were they're NSFW, but they look like regular names, you know? Exactly. Were, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you re, but then you'd say it out loud and you'd go, oh, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, we, we did a lot of just goofy stuff. When I, more when I was a lieutenant, a, a JO, a junior officer, yeah. in the OV-10 squadron, you know, we would... We would set up a bowling alley in the officers' club with uh, with beer bottles and toilet paper rolls, you know, and we would bowl, be bowling in the in the club, and you know, things invariably yeah, yeah. all broken. Um, what else we got in there? Yeah, what's yeah? <laughs> uh, I digress. Next question comes from Captain Jim, and Captain Jim wants to know how many years were you at Edwards Air Force Base, and were you ever one of the guys during that time who buzzed us at Mammoth Mountain? <laughs> I was never, I was never yeah. actually stationed at Edwards. That's um, my, that's my bad because I wrote that probably on the oh, announcement. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I was at test pilot. Edwards. Yeah, I was at Nellis Air Force Base for two years. Uh, I don't know that I ever buzzed Mammoth Mountain, but I'll tell you, I flew over China Lake, I flew over the Sierras, I flew over the Edwards Ranges a few times. Um, yeah, so I probably. I probably got close to Mammoth Mountain a couple times. We did some really good low levels out of Nellis. And I, gosh, I probably flew out of Nellis for three years because I deployed there so often mm -hmm. when I was in, in various stages of my career. Right. But uh, What else yeah. we got, Andy? Let's get through these questions. How many questions we got? Legally buzzing. Two more? Two more questions. Two wow, more questions. Fast. Next okay. question comes from Larry Stern, and he wants to know, uh, what are you doing, uh, what year did you retire, excuse me, and what are you doing now, Colonel? Uh, yeah, I retired in the end of 2009. And for the last 10 years, I've been employed by a, a major defense and aerospace technology company. I've, in that organization, I've, I've worked on the F-35 program uh, off and on for probably three or four years. I'm actually working on it right now. And again, thank you for the yeah. display. Um, I've, I've done, essentially I've done, uh, you know, right now what my job is, is to provide um, maybe what you call it, sustainment support or aftermarket support, ensuring that, that the airplanes that we build continue to fly. But I've been in uh, advanced uh, technology development, which, which was really interesting, where we were working on you know, advanced technologies and in future airplanes, if you will. And I've done a lot of strategic planning and basically strategy for what, what our company was going to go do next. So some cool. kind of cool stuff. Yeah, I've been doing that for about 10 years. Next question. Two more questions from the chat. Uh, one is for Rich very quickly. Uh, can you tell us about the ejection seat behind you? Where did it come from? Is it ours? Oh, yeah. And what's the story? Yeah, so this now is uh, donated to the Enrichers Club because it needs to get out of my garage. Um, but, but this ejection seat came out of uh, the Southern California desert, uh, namely the Smoke Tree Valley, which is uprange of the Chocolate Mountain Aerial Gunnery Range. And the story behind this is basically, um, when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I were tooling around the desert yeah. trying to find this piece of property that our family owned, and we found an injection seat. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we left it out. What do my, we do with this? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we drug it out. We left it out at my aunt's place in the desert and gave it to her for a couple of years, and then I uh, pulled it back to bring it here to show some people and um, cleaned it up, and we looked up the story and basically what happened is two A7 pilots, uh, an instructor and a student, you know, came and they bounced off each other, I guess, in a rendezvous and 
they basically ejected right away. So there's another seat somewhere in the California desert waiting to be discovered, probably in a similar location. That person who sent <laughs> that question ought to go find it. Yeah. So there's another seat out there. It's from an A7, you know, and uh, yeah, fairly interesting story. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool story. That's but now, a, now I think it's, it's a, a Martin Baker seat, I think. Yeah, I forget. Uh, I think it's an escape pack. I, you know, I, I had, all the research was much more in my head when you about first, a year ago yeah. when, I, when I did all this stuff. Yeah. But to, tonight it's just a, a prop because we're in aviation test flight month, so it's, it's good now prop. our centerpiece <laughs> for, the, for the rest of the month. All right, last question, right, Andy? Yes. Last, last question. question is uh, to the colonel again. You've probably seen both the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds fly their shows. What are some things that the Blue Angels do better and what do the Thunderbirds do better? Wow. Um, yeah, I'm not a great critique of air shows. What are some things? I, I, the, the Blue Angels, to me, always look like they fly closer. And the Thunderbirds fly, look like they fly close, too. But, and, and I got a chance to fly with the Thunderbirds. Yeah. Um, and I tell you, that's close. Um, that's close. Well, that, that's close. The, the Blue Angels look like they fly closer. I'll go with that. The Thunderbirds, I don't think the Blue Angels, maybe it's been a while since I've seen a show, but the, the, they always surprise me with the sort of the, the, what do they call it? It's sort of the surprise pass, you know? They'll have four of them doing some loop And then or one's off here. And then gonna come two of them right. just blow right over the top of the crowd, you know, at about yeah. 100 feet. And it just, it, it always goes, I always go, whoa. And they do it in full afterburner and they go away from, you know, the direction the crowd is looking. So, you, you know, when you see two F-16s come overhead, uh, at about 100 feet with the afterburner blowing uh, and it, all that noise, man, I, it fires me up. I'll tell you <laughs> what, you know, it, the, the um, Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are great, but the, the most eye-watering, like, American moment I've had at an air show yeah. where it just really put everything in perspective. Yeah. Because, you know, we're talking about shock and awe and all this stuff and right. everything like that. <laughs> that B-2 comes at you. Oh, yeah. And you're just sitting there and you just see this black, yeah, silent, <laughs> and you're like... Man, like if I was in a foxhole and I saw that, I'd be like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> like, we're all done. <laughs> you know, what does that thing have? Oh, it can have nukes too? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. like let's get the hell out of yeah, here. Yeah, I'll finish with uh, um, two things. On the Thunderbirds, the thing that amazes me about both the Thunderbirds, and, and I'm sure it's like this in the Blue Angels, having, I got to fly in the slot position, in, not in the front seat, in the back seat. When I was at Nellis, you know, I knew some of the Thunderbirds, so mm -hmm. uh, on a training sortie, and it just—it was like, wow. But th there's the movement that's in that formation that you see when you're in the formation that you never see from the ground is mind-boggling. Because it, it's just them, yeah, making because, minor corrections. There's all these little, you know, burbles. There's there's turbulence, and they're just constantly correcting. So the airplanes are actually moving a fair amount. I mean, do they have a different software loadout for that F-16? Nope, same. It's just like the stock, so to speak, like. They don't get more. They don't get more of a nope. vote than the computer it's, than a normal. It's a stock F-16. Huh. I mean, they, they do. They put in. They take out the gun and they put in an oil tank to make the smoke. And there's a couple of little things they do like that, but it's basically a stock F-16. Hmm. Um, the B-2. Let me finish on this. I, I thought I was bad when I went to war and I had a four ship of F-16. So I'm sitting there, over, um, you know, Nazaria, talking to a controlling agency. This is when we're in the beginnings of OIF. And um, I've got um, <clears throat> myself and Corn. maybe it was a four-ship, and controlling agency and a B-2 checks in. And, and 
you know, I forget, Red Crown or something was, you know, the controlling agency, you know, give me your loadout, you know, uh, Demon 2-4 or whatever my call sign was today. And I go, Roger, I got two harms. I got one JDAM and I got one WICMID. <laughs> Roger, uh, Spirit 2-2, what is your loadout? I got 36, <laughs> you know, <laughs> JDAMs. And, and then he goes, Roger, okay, Spirit 2-2, um, yeah, Demon just hold there for a bit. We're going to give some targets to Spirit. So they ra they rattle off 36 targets to this V2. And, and finally, I think we just go home, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I can't hold a candle to that. Oh. Uh, so, and even, every one of those JDAMs, you know, independently targeted, there's a guy up front going tap, 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 tap. Yep. Pew, tap, 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 pew, tap, 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 pew. <laughs> there they go. So That's anyway. crazy. Uh, well, hey, Colonel Reed. What thanks. an honor. Yeah, it's great thank to you be for coming by. I'm glad you could make it. My and pleasure. you're going to have to come by once we reopen the club after all this coronavirus, COVID I, stuff goes away. I'm excited. We normally excited. have a ton of people in here, and I'm sure they'd all love to meet you. You yeah. know, tonight was great. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you. So for all our viewers out there, stay tuned. Uh, like and subscribe our channel. Next week, more aviation test flight stuff. It's going to be great. I'll be watching. The whole month of July. <laughs> yep. So we will see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Rich. No problem.